That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. B-F-F-T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball-faced truth. Final show of 2023. What is up? What's up? What's good? Friday show going into the holiday weekend. 503-417-7575. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Canzano. Sun Bowl came and went. Did they actually play today, Stephen? Well, uh, one team did. One team did. One team played. I, I won't be too harsh on Oregon State today. I think we all you know, know what that program has been through the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, they, they played hard in that first half. That second half was really tough to watch. But at least we get to turn the page and move into the Trent Bright era of Oregon State football after a big loss in the Sun Bowl to Notre Dame. But uh, it's all right. It's all right. Let's focus on the, the positive things for the Beavers moving forward. And uh, we also know, Stephen, that Ben Branson probably not the quarterback of the future. <laughs> For the orange and black. Yeah, we learned a couple things. Uh, One thing, the season's over. Number two, uh, Ben Branson, probably not the quarterback next year. Beaver fans, you can uh, chime in at 503-417-7575. We can also start thinking about the Ducks on Monday morning. Late morning, taking on Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, That's going to be a fun one. I think I'm seeing some line movement back toward Liberty in that one. It's uh, Is it under 17 now? I saw 16 and a half this morning uh, in some places, so which is interesting. There was some money laid on the Beavers, too, because it got down to about five and a half close to kickoff, and uh, obviously that did not work out in Oregon State's favor. We'll talk some NFL today. we got Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic coming on to talk a little Seahawks with us. That's coming up in our second segment. Always good to get caught up with uh, Michael Sean. Seahawks and Steelers. At, uh, at, uh, I was going to say CenturyLink. Lumen Field on Sunday. Uh, just two weeks to go in the NFL regular season. Playoff races coming down to the wire. How about the Cleveland Browns? They're going back to the playoffs, Stephen Vaughn. Third time since 1999. We'll see the Brownies in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe Joe Flacco. Hey, you know what, Judah? Let's open the show with this. We could have opened it like this in 2013. Is Joe Flacco elite? <laughs> is he an elite quarterback right incredible? now? Like he, I mean, oh, he is. Oh, boy. I don't know what I don't know what's up. He's good. Like he's a good quarterback. Yeah. And I think the Browns stumbled upon him and now, you know, David Njoku is, you know, one of the top tight ends and the Browns look like a really dangerous team cuz that defense is nasty, man. That defense can get after people in the playoffs. So, I mean, as long as Flacco can keep playing like this, I think the Browns maybe they can make some noise in the AFC. Well, I don't know. They're going to be the 5 seed, you know, from from all the looks of it because that's win number 11. And they've got one more game to go. They've got 11 wins with four quarterbacks, the last of which being a 38-year-old Joseph Sebastian Flacco III. I mean, that's that's really incredible stuff. Kevin Stefanski, big tip of the cap to you. And uh, if you think to the 2020 season, the Browns in that COVID year, 
Uh, they beat the Steelers in the wild card game. You know, went you know ran away from them in the wild card game, and then had the Chiefs down to the wire. It took a Chad Henney you know sprint out to Tyreek Hill on fourth and one in Arrowhead to win that game in in the divisional round. Mahomes I think went out with a concussion in that game. Uh, now it's the COVID year. You throw it throw it all out, but here comes Stefanski a few years later, and they've they've hit some rough patches. This is a new phase of Cleveland Brown football, and you know when I think of the Cleveland Browns, I think of uh, you know a a win in Arizona, or I can't remember if it was like oh six. They came very very close, but couldn't get into the the playoffs with Derek Anderson as their quarterback. Scap, who's high grade Derek Anderson, um, but man, to see the Browns back in the playoffs is is going to be fun. But I, I would have never have been able to predict this version of the Cleveland Browns being the team that plays in the postseason. But that's fun. Got a lot of NFL uh, storylines to hit. We'll see if the Seahawks can keep going on their two-game win streak. We'll see if the 49ers, who are in Washington to take on the Commanders this weekend, we'll see if the 49ers can get back off the schneid and and, uh, get another uh, win for them in their pursuit of the number one seed. In the final hour, Spencer McLaughlin locked on Ducks, locked on Pac-12. He'll join us to talk a little Oregon Duck football ahead of the New Year's Day matchup with Liberty. Uh, sports resolutions, life resolutions. It's our final show of the calendar year. You can offer yours uh, on Twitter at 750thegame and at 503-417-7575. Uh, your New Year resolution for your favorite team. What do you want to see your favorite team that you root for accomplish? Give me one specific thing that you're looking for Oregon in 2024. If you're a Duck fan, for Oregon State next year. If you're a Beaver fan, for the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, over the course of the next year. If you're a Blazer fan, what do you want to see? And, Stephen, we'll use that to to bring you in here. You went to the game last night, man. You had uh, tickets originally to the Friday night game tonight against the Spurs, and then when you got wind that Victor Weminyama may not play in both games, you muscled up and you found <laughs> found your way into Moda Center last night as well with your family, and that paid off if uh, if you were looking to, to check out Victor Weminyama in person. Yeah, no, we had to scrap our way. No, luckily, uh, Coach Vaughn, she she had a hookup, and she got us the tickets uh, for last night. And, uh, I mean, Wimbanyama, we were expecting a show, and he put on a show. I mean, it was maybe his best game of his career so far. 30 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists, 7 blocks. Jude, I mean, he was everywhere, and he lived up to all the hype. And you can see just how big he is in person. I mean, if you ever get a chance to see him, it is amazing. It's amazing how big and tall he is. Uh, very fragile. He looks very fragile, but he doesn't break. He just kind of, you know lumbers around and has good speed and good quickness. It's it's really it's really fun to watch. And you saw all the things last night against the Blazers of why everyone has such high hopes for him. So good. It was really fun to see. Uh, fun to see the excitement on the uh, little one's face just to see Wimbin Yama. He had his Wimbin Yama jersey on at the game. But uh, as soon as the game started, he took it off. He took it off, had a Blazer shirt underneath. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's his choice. I, I, I let him make his own choices, Judah. You know? That, that's my parenting. I'm gonna let him make his own choices. He wanted to go Wimby jersey. I felt like a weird dad because he loves the Blazers, but he just couldn't wear the Wimby Yama jersey and cheer for him. He had to cheer for the Blazers. Like, he is nine and he is a die-hard Trailblazers fan. After the game, we we're talking and I was like, you know what? It's a, it's too bad the Blazers are are bad. But you know what? You know what we do? And he just jumped in, interrupted me, and goes, "We cheer for them anyways." And it made me. I tell you what, my heart. <laughs> It just it got happy. It made Boy. me feel good that he said that. So, you know, he's a diehard Blazer fan, and it makes me feel good about it. But Wimbanyama, man, he is uh, he's one of a kind. That is for sure. He is one of one, and it'll be fun to see his growth, like, you know, going into next season. Yeah, and he didn't even play very many minutes and still got 30 points, a bunch of blocks, 
a bunch of rebounds, helped you win a little uh, same-game parlay along the way. No big deal. And once again, the Blazers go into a game as a favorite and lose outright uh, pretty convincingly. So that's 0-3 outright for the Blazers when they've been a betting favorite this year. Pretty amazing. And, you know, their favorites tonight against the Spurs as well. Uh, it's up to 5.5, but uh, Anthony Simon's not going to play. Shaden Sharp not going to play. DeAndre Ayton not going to play. Tumani Kamara is questionable. Jabari Walker is probable. Like, uh, I don't know. I think So it, bet the Blazers. So I, bet, I, I already bet the Blazers, and I feel good about it. I will say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buck the trend here, and I'm going to go Blazers, but yeah. it's Blazers nothing tonight. Bla- uh, no Wemby tonight. No Wemby tonight. See if Greg Popovich shoots up himself, but that's your little uh, Blazer update uh, getting closer to the new year. Any New Year's, uh, you know, um, traditions that you like to do, Stephen, as we get closer? We'll have New Year's Eve on Sunday this year. And uh, New Year's Day on Monday, and of course the trio of college football games that will get our attention on Monday between uh, the Duckies and the Fiesta Bowl, the Rose Bowl between Bama and Michigan, and of course the Sugar Bowl nightcap, U-Dub taking on Tejas. Yeah, uh, New Year's uh, traditions that I used to have before I had kids, uh, me and the wife and my brother, we would always go down to Spirit Mountain. And we'd always have New Year's there. We'd just gamble, and it was really popping there. But then we would leave before actual, like, the countdown. We'd leave the crowd early. Uh, so usually we were on the road during the New Year. That was kind of our uh, our tradition. But <laughs> now that we have kids, you know, just get together with the family, do that, and then... Uh, kids don't stay up past... Or do they go to the, to uh, my the old, My oldest will will try to stay up the yeah. whole night. He'll try. He did one year, uh, so we'll see if he does again. But the little one, he'll he'll go to sleep early for sure. Like he just can't stay up. He he just he hits a wall and he gets tired. And he has to do it. So the old one, nine year old, he'll probably stay up till twelve and then we'll send him to bed. But we'll, we're getting together with family. Uh, their little cousins will be a little fun little time. And then nice. uh, yeah, I can't wait for Monday morning. I mean, at, yeah. you know, ten o'clock started with the Liberty Bowl there. You know, watching the Ducks and going all the way. To the college football playoff games. Is it really starting at 10 a.m.? Goodness. What else you got going on? I got, yeah, but to play at that time out here? That's, uh, that's so Maybe early. Maybe we should be betting Liberty. Is that what you're saying? Well, money's coming in on Liberty, I guess. I mean, is it... Uh, it's uh, It was at like... Yeah, it's 16 and a half. 16 and a half now, so... Yeah, I mean, somebody's, somebody's betting Liberty. Yeah, 10 a.m. in the Fiesta Bowl. Now, is Arizona on... Pacific time or no, they're they're an hour ahead of us. So at least it's eleven o'clock local now. I can never keep track of all that. But yeah, that's early in the morning. Uh I think Oregon will will show up to play. I think they'll be all right in this game. I don't know anything about the spread just because I feel like Liberty can backdoor any number. Uh I don't know how good the ducks are gonna be defensively in this game. Um, but you know, hopefully they just win and it's comfortable, it's clean, nobody gets hurt. And uh, they can go and get their 12th win of the season to finish 12-2 and two and build some positive momentum uh, if that is a thing playing in the Fiesta Bowl for 2024. Yep. As for the Beavers in this game, uh, they came out and <laughs> it was going to be a t- tough sled against Notre Dame. Not that Notre Dame is a bunch of athletes, but it looked like Notre Dame just wanted to uh, wanted to be there. And they dominated the trenches on the offensive line and especially the defensive line in this game. They had tough running. They're running back. Their backup running back uh, is a tough runner. And defensively, they just dominated Oregon State on the offensive line, Stephen. And that was my fear going into the game for the Beavers. Without Fuaga, without Gray, um, even though Levin Good was still planned, it, without Jim Machalsek as well, kind of running things in that run game. And obviously no Damian Martinez. 
Uh, I, I was hard-pressed to think the Beavers were just going to be able to show up and run the football like they have all year, and uh, that certainly showed up in this game. Yeah, I mean, you thought it would be a little better than it was, but uh, it, it was not good at all. You know, 16 rushes, and you count if you count the sacks with Ben Branson, 16 rushes, two yards on the game. Two. I never count sacks. All right, so we'll, I don't know what that. We'll take. Why those, do college? We'll, why does college football count sacks for the, rushing? That then makes we'll take no Gold sense. Branson's running out of there, and it's eleven carries for uh, fourteen yards. Still not great there. Not Judah. Great so there. yeah, I mean, I expected a little more, but they, you know, they got behind the eight ball early. Notre Dame goes down, scores that touchdown, and Oregon State kind of got a little bit going on that first drive, they got a couple first downs, and then they ended up punting. And it was after that, it was like, all right, well, this is going to be troublesome. And then, you know, we, we see what Ben Goldbranson is. He, he is what he is. Like, he, he's a okay backup quarterback, okay number three quarterback. But when you need him to play against a really good team, I think it's going to be troublesome. And that's kind of what happened in this game against Notre Dame. Just, you know, when it got away from him and uh, Notre Dame just dominated him on the ground. You know, 236 yards rushing for Notre Dame. Like, that, that there's, there's the killer right there. Two yards to 236. When that happens, you're not going to become close in this game. Yeah, saw Trent Bray on the sidelines kind of, uh, you know, taking some, some mental notes, even though it was a Kofensi Henson kind of running the show for the Beavers in this one. It was only 14 nothing at halftime. Notre Dame missed a field goal along the way. And then in the second half, they just overwhelmed Oregon State, got up by as much as, I think, 33 to nothing uh, before the Beavers got a pretty sweet touchdown in there and a two-point conversion. Ran a fake punt, you know, in that first half along the way, too, that I thought was just really, really predictable. I don't know what it is about the Beavers, but they always run the most predictable fakes, right? <laughs> Going back to the Arizona game, uh, even this game as well, it's like, dude, like, that's what I would have run as a 12-year-old on Madden. And my brother would have known it was coming because he could see me selecting the play on the screen, right? Like, that's how it felt like. It's like, oh, man, this is just too obvious a place to fake the punt, and it got blown up. So uh, and Notre Dame turned that into their second touchdown of the game. Um, you know, but again, I'm not going to be too harsh on Oregon State. I think it's kind of a good riddance end of the season. You know, Jonathan Smith put this team in a pretty bad spot. Uh, leaving, you know, in the manner in which he did with the timing that he did. I'm not sure, you know, if there's ever a good way to handle a situation like that. It's just the reality of it. Um, but this this is why I said on the show yesterday that I thought Notre Dame was going to win and cover was just because I didn't know that Oregon State offensively would be able to do much. And then Notre Dame, from a motivation standpoint, seemed like they had you know, more of a of a willingness to show up and play with an edge. Yeah, which I, they did. I mean, you look at Oregon State, the way they finished the season, they were 8-2. and two. And number eleven of the nation, right? Yeah. The top two. That's the peak, right there. They were the top two lost team in the college football playoff rankings. They have Washington and Oregon on their schedule. Like you're looking at them, thinking, all right, if some crazy things happen, it wouldn't be out of the out of the you know out of the question to say Oregon State could be in the college football playoff if some crazy things happen. Yeah. Now they lose those two games, barely lose to Washington, get blown out by Oregon. Jonathan Smith leaves the next day, and now you know a blowout to Notre Dame, just kind of a, a you know. A negative way to end the season, but eight wins on the year. You know how would how would you grade the season? Just looking at the you know because going into the season, Judah, the, the win total eight eight and a half, maybe seven and a half at some point at the start of it. It got up to eight and a half at one point. Like you had the under. I had the under. I thought that I thought they'd be seven and five. They were eight and four, so I was a little down on them a little more. But eight wins on the season, losing to Washington, losing to Oregon. The way the season ended, I mean, it, it's hard to look at the season as a whole and say, yeah, that was a real positive season for the Oregon State Beavers football program. 
just with everything that happened on and off the field, losing your coach, yeah. losing this game to Notre Dame, like you would have loved to see just a little better effort. You know, not like it matters going into the next season, but it it, it didn't take out the bad taste in your mouth from the last from the last you know month of the season. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea where to start with calling it a positive or negative season, other than it was definitely not a not a positive season. Um, not but because, it was for a lot but it of was the time. for for a little while, but just like the the way it ended, like anytime you are left without a conference and without a head coach, uh, you know, that's going to be tough. But at the same time, you get controlling, you know, uh, operation of the assets and liabilities of the conference. So you got some millies to split with Washington State. Some would argue that's the biggest win of the season, right? Because it keeps your athletics kind of viable and alive and relevant from a financial standpoint, gives you some pathways to, uh, you know, potentially latch on with a bigger, you know, more sustainable conference situation moving forward. That's probably the biggest win was from Gary Libby up there in Whitman County Superior Court. And then uh, the the subsequent, uh, you know, decision to to not uphold the stay or however they word that from the state Supreme Court in Washington. Like, oh, is you still swinging? Man, they're still alive. They're still swinging. Wazoo's still swinging. So, you know, let's hear one. Let's hear it for the little guy. Um, because at the end of the day, if, if they, if they get, took the L on that, then this whole thing would be one of the most depressing things that, you know, we've ever seen in collegiate athletics and sports in general. It's already pretty darn depressing, but at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's pathway to operate moving forward, chance to get to another lily pad for the beeves and the Cougs. And that, you know, kind of trumps anything that happened on the field today for sure. And anything probably that happened on the field all year, because once, we got that news in August that everybody was was ditching the the league and Oregon State and Wazoo were left upstream without a paddle. You know, to get to where we are today, at least the Beavs and the Cougs have some uh, potential to to survive and operate and go forward and find themselves a new destination next year and the next year or two. Like that's the biggest win of the year for me. So I guess in in that sense, all things considered. You know, it's a positive season for the Oregon State Beavers. Just one of the more bizarre few months that you could ever go through as an athletic program, not just football. Yeah, and that's what I've been saying that, you know, the entire season. It's like just somehow stay relevant. Somehow stay relevant if you're the Oregon State Beavers football program. I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know if they're going to end up in one of the Power Four conferences or if they're going to be, you know, a Mountain West school or a Big Sky school or, a bit, you know, one of those schools. I don't know how it's going to finish, but all they can do is try to stay in the game. And so far, you're right. Like, they did stay in it. They're still somewhat relevant. And I think there is still a pathway to getting back to the Power Four conferences, which is the ultimate goal, right? Now that the college football playoff is going to be expanding, you want to get to the, one of those Big Four conferences they're still alive in that. So I think you're right. Like you got to say with all the things that bad that happened for the Oregon state Beavers, they're still at least relevant and they're still at least alive to have that happen. That's the ultimate goal. But if we're just talking on the field and we're talking with the performance of the team, you know, I think it would have to be a little bit of a disappointing season for me, just, you know, as an outsider right here, just knowing this, how the season ended, you lose to Oregon the way you did Uh, the Washington game. You were right there, but uh, you know, you just never had control of that game as well. Like not winning one of those games, I think, was hard for Beaver fans to really stomach going into the end of the year, thinking like, you know, we could be a top 15 team, top 10 team in the nation, but instead you lose three straight. And now they may not be ranked in the final AP poll. I, I think it's a little disappointing, uh, just on the field as well. Yeah, I think that Washington game was was the big, you know, disappointment in there because it was 
The next week was Thanksgiving week. Jonathan Smith came on the show on Tuesday. That was the big interview that went viral with him saying, I hope my agent is finding some opportunities. I'm paying him enough. That's his job. And that was the indication that he's like, um, you know, sorry, not sorry. I'm gone. And he was. By Saturday morning, he was gone. And, of course, with the Civil War on Friday, uh, it, you know, that's why I said the Ducks were going to win. The Ducks were going to win big because we've seen this story before with a coach halfway out the door, you know, with one and a half steps all the way to East Lansing that the Beavers, they didn't have a shot in that game. And, and the Ducks made sure of it um, in that rivalry game, which will will still have the rivalry in September of next year. I still I'm not a huge fan of that. I think I'm in the minority. Sounds like most people are are good with the rivalry and that it's fine and being played in September next year and the year after. Is it just the timing of the game? Timing of the game is weird. And it's just, you know, the Civil War to me is all about, you know, it, it's vibes and electricity in both programs, you know, with the, the, the in-state hatred, as it were. There will still be some of that, I think. I just don't know that the Beavers will be able to – um, be on a, a similar playing field athletically as the Ducks. And maybe that, you know, that's putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Maybe I should see how the Ducks roster takes shape. But um, I, I'm a little bit worried about the Beavers roster, how it comes together. The only the only positive thing for that one, I think it's in week four of the season. Now, I did see Oregon and Hawaii are talking about rescheduling their game, which is, I think, the either the opening game or the week zero game. The I week believe, zero yeah. game, if they want to reschedule that. So that it would make it the third game for the Ducks um, and the Beavs. So you'd have a couple of games under your belt. If it was like the first game out or the second game out, I think Oregon would, you know, kind of overwhelm Oregon State in that scenario. But uh, maybe I should wait and see how Trent Bray starts building out his roster and everything. I just think entirely new scheme. The the beauty of Oregon State and where when Oregon State is able to be relevant and matter nationally, it's when you know their product is more than the sum of their parts, right? It's everything working together to make something magical. That's Oregon State. That's the recipe for success because you do not have the resources. You do not usually have the recruit Jimmy and Joes that can be comparable to, to the Oregon Ducks or to some of the other big boys. But how do you get to 8-2 and two and ranked 11th in the country? You've got incredible alignment from the top down with your president, AD coach, you had a very good degree of that with Murphy Barnes and Jonathan. And then from the coach to the coaching staff, there's incredible continuity there. And you had that with Jonathan Lindgren, Machalsek, and Bray. Like ever since Bray took over for Tibisar, like that side of the ball was solidified and becoming a strength of the team, especially at home. And the Beaver magic comes from being greater than the sum of their parts. That's why you know football matters, and that's why they can they can fly you know above ten thousand feet when nobody expects them to. When they don't have a, they're not supposed to be able to play pay for a plane that can fly that high. But they are able to do that because you know they're able to work together. That's all gone. That's gone. I know you could say Trent Bray. He's a beef. He just took the job. He, he knows the program. All the assistants are gone. Top two quarterbacks are gone. New quarterback will be in there next year. New scheme in the run game will be there next year. You know, Damian Martinez will be back, but I don't know who's blocking for him. You had two first-team all-conference guys basically coming into the year. Fuaga is going to be an NFL player at right tackle. He's gone. You got a bunch of guys leaving on defense. You know, Oladapo, the leadership that he's provided, you know, over the years. Chatfield, um, 
you know, there's a lot of questions on the Beaver roster. And so, anyway, I only say that just because I'm not entirely sure. Everybody's saying the schedule is good enough for the Beavers to run the table in the Mountain West and make it into the playoff. And, I mean, I, I'm still a ways away from being able to believe in that. I think it's the reality is this is going to be a little bit of a harder reset uh, than Beaver fans probably realize. And I hope I'm wrong, and I very well could be. Uh, we'll talk more Beavers later in the show, but up next, we'll talk some Seahawks. Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic uh, joins the show. Coming up next, Judah Nubi and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano on The Bold Face Truth. Back to The Bold Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back to the show. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano. John will be back in the chair Tuesday after the holiday. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to this weekend of uh, NFL football as well. Just two games to go. We got week 17 and 18. Seattle Seahawks got the uh, home finale on Sunday. Every game matters in the race for the playoffs. Let's talk a little Hawks with Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic. Covers Seahawk football. What's up, Michael Sean? How are you? Doing good. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. You know, I was thinking about the the Seahawks this time last year and just reminding myself that I think they had the Jets coming into town um in in the the week 17 game and they were on the outside looking in of the of the playoff picture and needed to win out and they needed some help along the way and they eventually got it. Now this year at the very least thanks to the last couple of weeks at least you know, they're in the driver's seat for one of these wild card spots. I'm curious from your vantage point, you know, you follow the team week in, week out. You got the pulse of them. Do they feel like a collectively better unit, a more improved unit at this time than they were a season ago? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think they're better in some areas. Like, I, I think the pass protection uh, at this point is a little bit better. Um, just I think Abe and Charles. I've just naturally grown um, from year one to year two. Um, I think that their pass rush is a little better. I don't know if the numbers back that up, but I think like right now they're like six in sacks or something. Uh, last year they finished seven, so it's not like they uh, they stunk it up last year. Um, I do think that uh, overall I trust the back end uh, a little bit more right now, particularly when Devin Witherspoon plays. Um, and then I trust the linebackers a lot more. Um, even though Jordan Brooks is probably not going to play on Sunday, but just having Bobby back um, is such such a difference maker um, than the pairing of, I think it was Jordan Brooks and Cody Barton this time last year. I think Jordan got hurt in the Week 17 game last year. So, uh, yeah, they feel, though, mostly a similar-ish team. They need to run the ball better, um, be more explosive offensively, uh, limit explosives defensively, you know, um, and get more help from their edge rush group. Like, there's a lot of things that are similar about about the team, which is probably why their record uh, and the feel of them feels pretty similar uh, as the situation last year. Is that, uh, you know, within the range of your expectation for them going into the year? Or is, has any part of this season surprised you in any way? Um. Another good question. I, I can't remember what I said they would be at the beginning of the year. I, maybe nine and eight. I, I felt like they had changed a, a lot of names, but not necessarily gotten noticeably better. I felt that way, particularly up front. Um, like, I don't think – like, they changed out their whole D-line, essentially. You got rid of Al Woods, Puna Ford, uh, Mario Edwards, 
um, and then I think one other person, oh, Quentin Jefferson, and then basically swapped all of those guys for Jaron Reed, Mario Edwards Jr., Draymond Jones, um, and at least one other person. So, oh, uh, Cameron Young, uh, the rookie they drafted from Mississippi State. So I felt like those that that just different names, not necessarily like totally, totally better, and that kind of bears itself out, um, at least until the Leonard Williams uh, acquisition. Uh, I expected the offense to be top 10-ish, which I believe it is in efficiency right now. Like, they're like 10th. I think the Chiefs are 11th. So they're about where I expected there. I thought they would run the ball a lot better um, than they have been, or at least more consistently. Uh, I did think the the secondary would be much improved if they had a healthy Jamal Adams next to Quandre with Devin Witherspoon and Reek. But I just knew they would have some issues if they didn't step forward uh, in situational football, third down in the red zone, particularly on offense. I figured that those that would be their Achilles heel um, if they didn't you know, figure out how to be better in those situations. And what do you know? Not a very good red zone team on offense again, and they're a really, really bad uh, offensive team on third down. So um, this is kind of meeting my expectations. Uh, they may have gone about getting to these expectations in a different path than I expected. But, yeah, this is right about um, where I thought they'd be. It's just the reason I go big picture with you out of the gate is is like I, I'm a big Seahawk fan, and you know, I watch every game and uh, so get a little emotional but also try to, to be as objective as possible and – and with two games to go, relieved that the playoffs are still within the Seahawks' control, but also trying to remind myself and give myself the proper context of what this season means. And uh, you you talk to Pete all the time. You know, you're around him all the time. I think it got brought up in one of his pressers recently of, like, I th- maybe before the Eagles' Monday night game, like, what's at stake with all this? And he's like, everything. Everything's at stake, you know? And maybe I couldn't tell if that was coach speak, but it also felt... It felt real, Michael Sean, in that um, you know this this new iteration, this new evolution of Pete Carroll Seahawk football, it, it seemed a little bit fragile there <laughs> coming out of that losing streak, and it feels at a, at a better place now. Um, but what's the reality? Like, what, what's the through line of, of all that as you kind of place this version of Seahawk Pete Carroll football? Are we are we close to the end with this, or um, you know what are the stakes that we're talking about with two games to go? Yeah, I think the, the stakes are just as high as they were heading into that Eagles game. They basically, going into the Eagles game, it was like do or die, you know, win or, or start booking, you know, trips to Cabo pretty much. And they're kind of mm-hmm. still in that scenario. They can lose on Saturday or, excuse me, on Sunday and still get into the playoffs. Um, but it'll it'll be much harder. Like a win almost locks it up. Um, but I think – I don't know if the era is potentially over, but I do think we're at a place where – the guys in the building, particularly some of these new guys, whether they're young guys or they're old guys, they, they need proof that this Pete Carroll stuff works, that there that there's something to this messaging, you know, because there's not that many people in the building left, or at least on the roster, that really know, like, hey, you know, if we just do what Pete says, everything will be all right. Now, they, they saw it on TV. They could read about it. They could see old film, but they still got to experience it for themselves, you know. Like, look how many guys are on this team that are either in their first year with Pete or their second year with Pete, and they, they got to see it, you know. They got to know that, like, all this two-minute stuff that they practice will eventually pay off. They got to know uh, that, like, this always-compete stuff isn't just going to – isn't just coach-speaking. It's eventually going to put the best 11 guys on the field on both sides of the ball, and just all this messaging is eventually going to get them out of a rut, you know. And I think that was huge because if you're the ownership of the Seahawks, my, I would imagine that the only reason that you would move on from Pete you know, absent of, like, a complete meltdown is if you feel that, 
what he's selling is not being bought by the people that need to buy into it. Um, and that's why I think the Eagles win and even the Titans win the last couple of weeks was very important because it does feel like, all right, cool, Jack, a Jackson Smith and Jigba can see proof of concept. Um, a Ken Walker, a Zach Charbonnet, a Draymond Jones, a Julian Love, you know, a Reek Willen can see proof of concept. Like, all right, cool. What Pete says, we buy it and believe in it and go execute it. We can go get this thing done, um, even in the face of adversity or a losing streak or, or whatever. And as long as Pete still has the locker room, as long as what he's selling is still being bought, I don't think, like, this era is in jeopardy of, of ending. Talking to Michael, Sean Dugar covers the Seahawks for The Athletic. Um, what's the latest on Jamal Adams and that saga over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, the, the Jamal thing is pretty strange because, um, I, I mean, I know his, his knee is in a bad place. I think he mentioned that after they, they beat the Browns. But, like, Pete's being a little weird about it. And he's and I said the word weird because he's he's balancing between, like, what feels like pretty significant extremes. Like, I'm not really sure how a guy that can be day-to-day and essentially be week-to-week, but also be in danger of being shut down for the year. You know, now the yeah. year doesn't have that many games left, but if you think about it, like, oh, yeah, we'll just look at him tomorrow. Oh, hey, uh, could he be shut down for the year? Oh, yeah, maybe. Like, well, hold on, man. Like, how bad is this knee? Now, the answer might just be he doesn't know, but it does feel strange to list the guys day-to-day slash week-to-week, but also be like, yeah, now we thought about just not playing him again all year. I don't know how all those things can be true. Does he feel engaged, you know, and maybe that's part of it as well, and it's impossible to know. But the the mental side of the game um, with Jamal seems like it could be in play here as well. And, and you know, his social media behavior is, all, is, is part of that, I guess, uh, playing the little amateur psychologist. But uh, do you feel like Jamal, you know, is he just thinking, man, I'm kind of over this. I'm not sure I really want to come back. Um, You know, that's another good question. I, in full disclosure, I haven't really talked to Jamal since the – the Cowboys game, uh, I wasn't there um, when he had that scrum where he basically doubled down on making fun of the Jets reporter's wife and coming at the Jets reporter. I, I missed that. Um, so I don't necessarily know how he's feeling, but having covered Jamal for a little bit, I do know he takes everything really hard, um, and football seems to be one of the more important things in his life. You know, he in, in coming at the Jets reporter, you know, in his response with his local media, he was like, yeah, that guy came at something I love, which is football, so I came after something he loves, which was his wife. Now, he shouldn't have done that. He's tripping. But <laughs> I, I bring that up to say, like, Jamal sees, like, football as something he truly, truly loves, like, to, to the death, you know, to death do his part. Yeah. Um, and and I, he kind of reminds me, I'm about to sound old here for a second, right, but, like, I'm 31, um, and I, I have a, a, a kid now. And so my perspective on things have changed. And I talked to other guys on the team who are in that same boat. You know, Julian Love just had a kid. Drew Locke's wife is pregnant. A couple of other guys who are in my age range have small children. And it does make you just feel like, you know, my job is not the end of the world. I'm not about to go to war for every aspect of it or every criticism that I feel because of it or every setback that I experience due to it. Jamal doesn't seem to be that way. He's, he's behaving like a 27- or 28-year-old single cat, right? Like, oh, man, this is the end of the world if I can't go out here and, and play on this field and do this thing, right? And so guys take football – guys take sitting on the sideline tough, right? But you see the difference between a Devin Witherspoon doing it and Jamal doing it. You see the difference between Geno Smith doing it uh, on Monday Night Football versus Jamal Adams doing it, you know? Not necessarily that one way is right or wrong, but you can see the guys who are able to kind of put things in perspective and see things, see something being bigger than themselves. Um, and it just seems like Jamal is having an issue 
you know, doing that because of his knee injury. And maybe other stuff going on with him, I'm not sure. But, yeah, he just seems to be uh, incapable right now or just choosing not to put, you know, things in perspective and kind of accept something bigger than himself, uh, at least on game day. You know, the quarterback position in Seattle has been a, a fun one to, to watch the last couple of years, and it's got its fair share of drama. In the last couple of weeks, it's had its fair share of drama. Oh, and by the way, the, uh, the you know legendary Seahawks quarterback of the past decade is going through his own drama in Denver right about now. Uh, I'll ask you about Russell here in a moment, but I'll start with Gino and, and looking over his past couple of weeks. And I'm one of those, you know, when I'm watching Gino, like I understand his limitations um, as, a, as a fan and as a football watcher. So I'm not really all that disappointed when there's a bad play every now and then. Like I, I'm more thrilled by the positive plays that he he strings together. That Titans two minute drive was just man injected into my veins. It was so good, especially the ball to to Jackson over the middle and the the touchdown to Parkinson. But you know, other fans I interact with, Michael Sean Gino has one or two slip ups or you know looks bad on one or two plays. It's like ah, go, go to Drew Locke already. I'm like, what are we doing? Uh, like, come on now. The, the, the guys play really good football, like impressive football for a season and a half. He isn't like outstanding, but he's been really good um, from your vantage point. You know, what have you made of a Geno's performance, I guess, this season, but also B, um, you know, it had to been a tough decision and a, a tough operation to not play against the Eagles in that game. And I'm not sure where he was physically going into it. But, you know, from from being close to the situation, how do you read the last couple of weeks for Geno Smith? I think he's played decent ball uh, this season, a little inconsistent, uh, pressing a little bit. Um, I say he did a – he was pretty admirable in the way he handled all of those offensive line shuffles uh, in the beginning of the year because, like, their intended offensive line this this season was, I believe, the cheapest offensive line in, in the league. You got two guys on – got three guys on rookie deals um, and Damian Lewis, Abe Lucas, and then Charles Cross, and then you got – two veterans on one-year, $4 million deals in Phil Haynes and Evan Brown. At least I, I know that's what Phil's is. Evan's could be less or even uh, at that same number. Anyway, you got the cheapest O-line in the league, which is not bad, but it kind of indicates that if something goes wrong, you're probably screwed. Yeah. Um, and they were for a little bit there. They've played like four different right tackles uh, this year, and none of them have been as, as good or as steady as Abe Lucas, him being back, is, is really, I think, impacted whoever plays quarterback in a positive way uh, in Seattle. You can just see the difference, particularly in that Dallas game. Like the first couple third downs, I was like, oh, okay, they're fine now. Like 72 is here. Um, and I think that's helped uh, settle Geno down a little bit, um, stop pressing a little bit, because um, he was. He was either holding on to the ball or trying to squeeze stuff where he shouldn't. It just, it just it was it was uncharacteristic stuff when you see him getting a little better uh, as the protection gets better, as guys start running the right routes and the timing's uh, starting to be there with his receivers and everything. So I think he's been playing fine. Um, on film, he looks fine, looks just like the same guy last year for the, for the most part. Um, so I, I think his, his confidence never wavered, but you could definitely tell he was pressing a little bit, maybe trying to do too much, trying to – if they fell into a hole, you know, trying to dial up some play where they get 12 points on one touchdown, and sometimes you just got to remind yourself, it doesn't work like that. You know, I think even Brock Purdy said that this week, you know, when they got down against the Ravens, he was like trying to get it all back in one drive. And it's like, that's not how that works. You know, you have to take it one play, one drive at a time to mount a comeback. So um, I think he's played fine. Uh, I know it was hard for him to sit against the Eagles, but I think he did a good job of being the best teammate he, he could be for Drew and for his whole team. Um, and, you know, kind of controlling the optics and the narrative, right? Like no one questions Geno's commitment or his, his humility or his selflessness or his, 
his, uh, his value as a teammate because he was there, because he was on camera on national TV supporting his guy. And then Jamal kind of did the opposite and yeah. was like, oh, well, dang, now you're not there. You yeah. know, it's just sometimes the optics and perception, you gotta got to control a little bit of that, particularly for someone like Jamal who, who is upset and bothered by his, you know, perception in one direction or the other. Yeah. So I think Geno's still like a future of the franchise um, guy, you know, at least, you know, playing for the next couple of years, next two, three years. Um, he's, he's got the stuff. He's just clearly one of the quarterbacks, and even Mahomes is bearing this out as well. He's just one of those quarterbacks who he needs the stuff around him to function properly. And if it doesn't, he's going to have issues consistently overcoming that. I don't think that's an indictment of him. That's the reality. I just rewatched the Super Bowl Mahomes loss. It's not easy to overcome your circumstances on offense, man. The dude is running for his life. You know, he just and that's the greatest quarterback I've ever seen, and even he couldn't overcome his circumstances, right? So Gino's in that same boat. He's not as good as Mahomes, but I do think he's in that same boat. Um, but if they can be better around him, I think he can take them, you know, where they want to go. You know, it's that's that's really good. Optics and perception, um, also at play down in Denver with with Russell Wilson and John Payton and all the news that's been coming out this week. And the dude's getting benched, and he's actually been playing, you know, decent ball this year. Uh, coming out of the valley from from the year before, man, I gotta know as someone that's covered Russ in Seattle for so long. And w- what's your perspective like of everything that's going on with Russ in Denver? Well, just from the, from the Seattle kind of view, this is like the most obvious case probably we've had in recent years in the NFL of the grass just not being green. You know, like Russ asked for this. He thought the grass would be greener. I mean, other than the direct deposit hitting, it's not really been that. You know, he's been under even more scrutiny than he has been under like the back end of some of those let Russ cook like MVP years. You know, he's just – the inability to, to control the narrative because you lack the benefit of the doubt, you know, in a, at a new franchise, it's just been obvious, you know, Earl Thomas went through a similar thing, you know, got over there to Baltimore and it's just like, dude, you ain't done nothing here. Like we've had Ed Reed, we've had great safeties, you know what I'm saying? You know, you got to earn your stripes around here. And then what do you know? He, he, he gets uh, bounced after a year or so being there. So that part is just so obvious that the grass was just not greener. I don't fault Russ for necessarily wanting to go see, um, but now that he's seen it, you know, it's just not, not going well. Um, in this particular instance, though, I just feel like in, in in this situation and with Hackett, it feels like he's kind of been set up to fail with the coaching situation both times, you know, uh, for different reasons. Like Hackett was just in over his head. It was very clear. Like it was clear like the first couple games when he needed to hire a, a game management assistant. I was like, oh, yeah, he's done. He's done in that town. Um, and then with Sean Payton, like he came right in. Uh, telling Russ to stop, you know, basically acting like a presidential candidate. He kind of just seems to just unilaterally uh, fire uh, Russ's private QB coach and, you know, announce to the world that he'd done it. Before. I don't even know if he did, if he told Russ before he told us, you know. Um, I just felt like Sean came in there trying to lay down the law a little bit too, too heavy, you know what I'm saying, just kind of overcompensate for all the power that Russ was perceived to have been given last year with Hackett. And he's like, nah, man, I'm going to make very clear that I run this thing. And it's just like, man, that's not how that should go. You can just be you and run the thing without going out of your way to make it clear that you're the guy who deserves to have, you know, an office and the quarterback does not. So I, in that regard, I do feel like Russ has not been totally set up for uh, success. And then this particular instance of the whole contract thing, I just think it's wild for your employer to come and ask you to make yourself more expendable. This is nuts because that's exactly what happened. You can dress it up with certain language or whatever, but, 
the, the, the Broncos, according to pretty credible reporting from my colleagues at The Athletic and from Russ's mouth today, came in and said, hey, can you make it easier for us to get rid of you later? And Russ, and the, and the, Russ was like, no. And he was like, they were like, well, hey, just so you know, we might bench you, you know, if you do say no to this. That's nuts. That's nuts, man. That, that's nuts. I know Russ ain't played up to the contract, but when your employer comes down and says and threatens to keep you from working, and uh, so they don't have to pay you an event of serious injury, that's that's why the NFLPA got involved. That's how you get sued. You know, whether you're the NFL team or like a welders union or whatever, that's the type of stuff your union is for, and that's why they sue people. That is weird stuff going on over there. Um, that that's for sure, and we'll see what team Russ plays with next year. I'm very interested uh, in that. Michael, Sean, really appreciate your time, man. And uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you again uh, a time or two down the road. You follow him on Twitter at Mike Dugar and uh, get his work by subscribing to The Athletic. Seahawks, Steelers in the home finale on Sunday. Thanks for the time, Michael, Sean. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a good weekend. There he goes, Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic. Man, so much good stuff uh, to unpack out of that. But uh, also on the field, I mean, you got Mason Rudolph coming in. With uh, with the new look Steelers, you know, hopefully this is a tougher challenge for him than the Cincy defense he carved up in Pittsburgh uh, last Saturday. But we we shall see. Bounce break, come back, keep this thing moving right here on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. Our thanks to Michael Sean Dugard from The Athletic for joining the show, talking a little Seahawks. Unpack a little bit of that as well. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano. John back uh, next week after the holiday. Reading a tweet from Dan Wetzel of Yahoo. Have you seen this, Stephen? I do not believe so, no. So yesterday we were joking about Alabama no longer watching film on their iPads at home. Uh, and we were joking about that. Oh, you know, wouldn't it be hilarious if Michigan, you know, actually hacked into the Alabama, you know, uh, computers to steal film? I kid you not. This tweet from Dan Wetzel says, Catapult, a video and data analysis company used in college football, confirms the NCAA and, quote, local authorities are investigating, quote, unauthorized access of footage. The investigation is not centered on Michigan, but rather on at least one other school. Sources tell Yahoo Sports. Everybody in the comments says the other schools, Ohio State. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, unauthorized access to footage. And now Michigan and Alabama, they're not watching film on their iPads anymore because of this, dude. College football is a wild, wild place, just dirty. And, of course, it comes down to this. We'll talk about this more on the other side. Hour 2 coming up next on the World Fish Truth. B-F-F-T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the bald-faced truth. Hour two of the show, flying into a uh, New Year's Eve weekend. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Canzano. John will be back uh, after the holiday Tuesday of 
next week. Oregon State, tough one in the uh, Sun Bowl today. Not going to make any, you know, uh, sweeping conclusions about the Beavs after today. The overhit, which I did not think it would, but somehow the overhit at uh, 40 and a half. Blazers lose last night to the Spurs. Steven saw it in person, going back for a double dip tonight. No Wemby, but we'll talk about that, see if the Blazers can get it done. Uh, in the second of a back-to-back is a short home favorite. Talks with Michael Sean Dugar of the Athletics. Seahawks Steelers coming up Sunday at uh, Lumen Field. I'm a weirdo, so I was re-watching the last time the Steelers visited Seattle. Just 2015. The last time we had that little schedule rotation. You had Ben Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, D'Angelo Williams, Marcus Wheaton. Bartavis Bryant, that Steeler team coming into Seattle, and uh, the Seahawks countering with Russell Wilson. Thomas Rawls was running the football for the Seahawks that year, 2015. And uh, that was a wild game. Jimmy Graham. But Steelers coming into town, it's a game that the, the Seahawks really obviously need to win in order to continue to control their playoff destiny. Uh, Trevor Lawrence not going to be playing for your Jacksonville Jaguars, Stephen, uh, at least this weekend. And uh, they, they're they all of a sudden in a dogfight for their own division. So tough loss for uh, Trevor not playing. Yeah, that's uh, not ideal. Uh, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, Judah, like the Christian Kirk injury for the, the Jags was so big. I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, you're, you know, he's a good player, good fantasy player. But if you watch the Jaguars games like I unfortunately have, uh, he really he really is the straw that mixes that drink. You know, use that cliche. No. Like, that's the guy that Trevor Lawrence leans on. And once he went out, they just couldn't get open for Trevor Lawrence. And now Lawrence is hurt. I mean, it's even if they make the playoffs, it's going to be, looks like going to be, you know, a one game and out. But in uh, a season where the AFC is wide open. So it's, it's unfortunate for Jacksonville that way. Uh, college basketball last night. You saw the Ducks and the Beavers were both in action. Uh, Beavers gave UCLA a tough time. By the way, I thought UCLA was supposed to be good this year. Well, they're always supposed to be good, but they are not like, very good this year. 500. They were 5 and 6 at the end of the game, only 6.5 point favorites over the Beavs. And found a way to cover. They did, yeah. Despite being down at halftime, uh, credit the Beavers for for fighting in that game. And look, look, I, I, I am into moral victories for Oregon State basketball. I don't care what you think. I mean, Beaver basketball, if you play a team close, I'm going to be like, all right, that's a good night. <laughs> that's a good night. Uh, Oregon Ducks hosting Bronny James and, uh, and USC. And Oregon looked pretty good. And Jackson Shellstad keeps looking good, man. I mean, I don't know what it is about that Westland pipeline, but you go from Pritchard to Shellstad to both guys at Oregon and both guys going to be in the NBA. I mean, Shellstad looks like the real deal. And to be making the impact he is right away is, is something to watch. Yeah, Shellstad is a really good player. And then they got, you know, Kwame Evans Jr., KJ Evans, who had a nice game last night as well. And, and you know, the Ducks have been hurt all season long and followed Dante and Nate Biddle. They've been out for most of the season, but. Uh, you know, if they ever were to stay healthy at some point, I think that could be a really good, really good team. But they might be a really good team anyways without him, just because of the way Jackson Shellstad is playing. Like that guy is legitimately, legitimately good college basketball player, and like you said, he'll he'll be in the NBA one day. So, you know, the Ducks got something good going on there, nine and three on the season. Uh, yep, they'll, they'll be fighting for an NCAA tournament bid, I think. Uh, you got um, Portland State lost to Eastern Washington last night. That was kind of a surprising one because PSU's been playing good ball, and they got kind of blown out. So they got to uh, get back on it. The Ducks play on CBS tomorrow, by the way. When they host uh, UCLA, that game will be on CBS. So 
get the Beavers on CBS today. Hopefully it goes better for uh, the Ducks in basketball tomorrow on uh, on CBS. It's one of those things, uh, you know, college basketball season starting the conference play. You know, you can, Are you uh, paying attention a little more now? Yeah, you got to start paying attention a little bit more now, just, you know, with uh, college football wrapping up and the NFL getting on the playoffs. You're obviously watching, you know, the NFL and seeing what's happening there, and you got college basketball on the back burner, but it's it's time it's time to start paying just a little bit of attention. Yeah. You, you're going to find out what happens when they start playing conference games. So I'm excited as a college basketball fan. I'm ready for the college. Uh, for the conference season and then, of course, conference tournaments. So we teased it before the break, but Dan Wetzel, Yahoo Sports, uh, covers college football and all things uh, litigious with college football. He had this tweet that we were talking about because um, yesterday on the show, you know, it came to light that Alabama, uh, at least Alabama, turns out Alabama and Michigan, neither of them were watching film on their iPads at home anymore. They were leaving them at the team facility and only doing any video scouting, you know, at the Alabama team facility. And so we were joking around, Steven and I were like, well, wouldn't that be hilarious if it turned out that Michigan hacked into Alabama's software and that's how they were stealing film this whole time was like a software hack. And um, it was funny joke. Now it turns out Dan Wetzel is tweeting the following. He says that catapult a video and data analysis company used in college football confirms that the NCAA and local authorities are investigating unauthorized access of footage. The investigation is not centered on Michigan, but rather on at least one other school. Sources tell Yahoo Sports. Wetzel goes on to tweet that Catapult states, it did not find any security breach in our systems, but is supporting the ongoing investigation and uh, he said this week, both Alabama and Michigan players said they are no longer watching footage on individual iPads. Uh, Catapult captures and analyzes footage from games, practices, and other training. It's used in and is widespread in college football and beyond. So lo and behold, there's enough suspicious stuff going on in the world of college football, Stephen, that there's an investigation, you know, depending on who local authorities are, into Catapult, which is used in college football, uh, with unauthorized access. You know, what What a perfect story to end the year in college football 2023. Somebody hacking into somebody else's systems just to be able to steal film and footage and from practices, games, and other training. Like, is this really the world that we live in? Like, this is... This is worse than the NFL. Like, this is worse than Spygate. Like, people are hacking into other people's individual, like, Wi-Fis and servers and iPads to lift footage before big games like this. I mean, this is wild. It, it is wild. Um, I would say this, though, Judah. I think he, I think Dan Wetzel is putting out this kind of stuff, and people are putting out these tweets because they get a lot of activity. It, it's like the Coach Prime stuff at the start of the year with Colorado, how we kept seeing hot takes of, Colorado's going to the college football playoff. Colorado's going to be a Pac-12 contender. Well, you know what? Those those views, those videos, they're getting millions of views, millions of, you know, stuff like that. That tweet that he has, the original tweet, has over a million a million views already on it. Like, I, I think that, I think he knows, like, this story gets a lot of, a tr- lot of traction, and there's going to be a lot of mad Michigan fans that are, you know, reading these tweets, and then there's going to be mad Ohio State and Alabama fans, and it's a great way just to get everybody mad at one tweet. And so I think... Call me, uh, you know, a little bit conspiracy theory guy here. I think, you know, he took anything that he could find and said, you know what? I'm a, I can go into this uh, Michigan stealing signs scandal, get a tweet that's a banger tweet of over a million, you know, 1.4 million, and uh, call it a day. 
Well, then I'll ask you. Because this, has, this has nothing part? to do with anything. Like, this has nothing to You're telling me they're not watching film? Like, this is the, the most bogus thing ever. I just, I'm so tired of this whole thing. What, what part of it's bogus? Just everything. 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 The, the whole sign-stealing scandal has been a joke since the beginning. Meaning it, its impact on the real yeah, games. Yeah, it, it has no effect on anything, and we all act like it does. It doesn't. And what now, about lift? What if? What if? Just say what if. You just really think if. Michigan's hacking into the cloud to try to steal Alabama's stuff? No, they are not. I didn't think hack. so. That's why I thought it was a joke when I said it yesterday. I, that's what I'm saying. Like that's why. But I just, he wouldn't just tweet it if it was like fabricated. You I, think it's like a uh, an April Fools? Yeah, I I just I, <laughs> I can't believe I can't believe any of it. I don't believe any of it. I really don't. Oh man, I look, it better be totally not fabricated, but there there better be either minimal or no truth at all to this. Like if we if we find out that somebody hacked into somebody's they like, deserve a lot of punishment. Holy cow. Yeah. That's way worse than stealing signs in a stadium. Yeah, than a guy just recording you're just, recording on his phone. Yeah, you're just taking screenshots of film and training sessions. You know what I mean? Like, to me, I don't know. That's weird, first of all. That's weird. Like, what else is being filmed? and li- Like, what else? Honestly, what else is being lifted? You never know. I just think that that's, Look, that's crazy. You're right. If this is true and teams are trying to, you know, breach these systems... <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's, you know, the government trying to breach the government systems here. Like, yeah, they deserve to be punished. I just, I can't believe that they would go to this, this level and try to get that. Like, I, I just. Like, if it turns out that it's Ohio State, can you, would you believe that story if it got out? I don't believe any of it. <laughs> and it turns out his name is like, you know, Stoner Callions, you know, is the digital you know, hacker. But I'll t- I'll, I will say this. Remember when the Astros, you know, hacked into the Cardinals stuff? Yeah. And that was a former Cardinal exec that was running things in Houston. And, like, you know, he hacked into the data stuff that the Cardinals Did had. For- the login That's weird. Yeah. That's so weird. And it's like that shouldn't be able to happen. It's like that's one of the things you would never guess in a million years people are doing to get a competitive edge, right? Well, maybe you're. Maybe this is true. Hell, I wouldn't have thought the trash can thing was, was going on. That de- Altuve wearing the uh, the sensor on the jersey. I fully believe that that happened. Hundred percent. I mean, he's saying, that "Don't happened. rip my jersey off in the biggest moment of his life." Give me a break. Because of a new tattoo. Because of a new tat. Dude, get the hell out of here. What do you think? We're stupid. Altuve. Golly. I Look, and maybe I'm going to be the the idiot, and I'm going to have just it's going to be all over me. I'm just going to do it. And, and Michigan's trying to steal everything well, from everybody. I will say that you, you know what what you're saying resonates in the sense that sometimes there's a lot of these stories that get so much traction and oxygen. And it's just like, you know, a piece of candy over here for us to look at when in reality the impact on the field is minimal to to none. I would say that that is valid given the fact that Michigan still ran the table this year with no Harbaugh, no Stallions, and uh, Sharon Moore kind of running things for six games and winning the biggest games of the year at Penn State and home to Ohio State and looking really damn good doing it. Like, to me, that'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, and that's the thing. I kind of thought the same thing about Spygate when it happened. I was like, dude, y- y'all just pissed off, even though I hate the Patriots too. Like, I didn't think that it was going to slow them down necessarily from the from the Super Bowl. Deflategate, that was a little weird too. But we were definitely everybody was pissed at the Patriots. Still, who cares? It's like everyone you know? was doing it and going into the, the. I don't know if everyone's doing it. That's the thing. Sometimes I don't know that. I, I do think some programs are smarter than others. Maybe smarter is not the right word, but they go to greater lengths than other programs to get the edge. 
But by and large, your point's taken. Like, it's more widespread than we want to believe or care to believe or know. And therefore, when we when we find out these little bits and pieces of this being possible, it freaks us out a little bit. And you're saying, yeah, well, it, pro- it probably shouldn't in the grand scheme of things. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And I, I also just... The way that this has gone about, and the the wording of all these tweets of you know the the breaches and they're you know hacking into things, I just I find that hard to believe. But maybe I'm yeah. naive to that. I agree. That. I, it's hard for me to believe right now. Maybe I'm naive to that. Maybe no. I maybe they sh- maybe I should be thinking that teams are doing this, and you know because there are a lot of smart people out there that can do this kind of stuff and do it at a really high level that no one can even detect it. Um, and we uh, we know, and we know this to be true, Judah. Like especially in college sports, you know, professional sports, any type of sport, people are always looking to get an edge. So maybe I'm the one naive one that should be believing that. But I just feel like this is a story that is going to continue going because Michigan is relevant. They're in the college football playoff, and you know a lot of people don't like Jim Harbaugh as it is. Like they they find it fun to root against that guy. And so this is a story that you know people know if they talk about it's going to get a lot of engagements, and it just it it's, it just screams of. Coach Prime in Colorado at the start of the season when they go three and zero and we're hearing, oh yeah, this is gonna be a team that can, uh, you know, Sedor Sanders can win the Heisman Trophy or Colorado can make the College Football Playoff. Well, no, if you watch the games, you knew that wasn't gonna happen. And I just think right now with this type of story, it's the same type of thing. Like, yeah, there's stuff going on, and Michigan did cheat, and they were trying to get signs, you know, with Connor Stallions. But I feel like this has been happening a lot of times now. All these teams are just trying to point it at Michigan and saying you're the only ones that's doing it, then, of course, college football fans are going to, of course, attack Michigan and say, well, our program's clean. Our program would never do that, yeah. when in actuality, I think that a lot of teams are. Yeah, reading uh, some more on, on USA Today, uh, Isaiah Bond, the Alabama receiver, he was the one that told reporters that um, we've been instructed not to watch film on our iPads this week due to security concerns. Uh, the specific app is called Catapult. It provides comprehensive video and data analysis solutions for football teams. Um, company spokesman said, we are aware of the ongoing investigation of the alleged unauthorized access to NCAA football video footage. We have conducted an internal investigation and have not found any security breach in our systems. We have shared this with local authorities that are conducting an investigation. We will continue to support the ongoing investigation with the NCAA and local authorities at catapult, we hold ourselves, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's unclear if this investigation is related to Michigan's sign-stealing scandal or if it's a separate issue. Uh, Alabama offensive coordinator Tommy Reese declined several opportunities to elaborate on why the Tide felt the need to protect its practice film, but teams typically distribute the type of footage uh, direct to players' iPads via an online cloud storage service. So yeah, this would be basically somebody hacking that cloud storage service and uh, and getting it. Uh, though nobody said it explicitly, the implication would be that Alabama wanted to take an extra precaution against hacking into the film system. Um, meanwhile, Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy said Michigan hasn't watched films on their iPad since November. And uh, uh, Sharon Moore, the offensive coordinator, he confirmed as much by saying the team has only been watching film in-house. He said, yeah, we just caught wind of things that could be going on and told our kids it was early November, early November. Hey, we're not watching stuff on iPads anymore. Watch it in-house and handle it that way. So this has been going on for a few weeks now, it would seem. that, uh, And it doesn't seem like it's Michigan doing it uh, because even they themselves are like, yeah, we're not going to watch iPads you know, on our, our stuff anymore. But somebody is hacking into somebody's cloud service 
At least that's the implication. That's the idea in an unauthorized way and, and lifting footage. What kind of footage? Practice footage, training footage, game film footage, footage to get a competitive edge. That would at least be, in theory, what's going on. If that's really what's going on, man, golly, we're in a, a low, dark place in college football. But it, it's, in a way, the perfect ending to 2023. It does. Yeah, it's a great ending to the college football season with all the conference stuff and secret deals that are happening behind everyone's backs and you know behind the table. I, is it bad that I, I just I don't care how teams are watching film? Like, I, I really just don't care how teams are prepping before you go well, into you don't, the game. Yeah, you don't care about how they're prepping. Would you care if 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 it was proven that somebody was hacking into Alabama's cloud service or or Michigan's cloud service and lifting film that way? Yeah, I think they you would. You would care at that point. I would but care at that point. You also are like, I really highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. I, I highly doubt But, yeah, I mean, if it was proven that these schools are going in and hacking into these other schools, yeah, you deserve <laughs> to be punished. What if it's Michigan State? Because, again, you can't. Jonathan and I said, this, I said this the first thing that happened with Michigan. I think all this is happening. Michigan is dumb for getting caught. Like, you shouldn't be getting caught in this situation. You should be smart enough how to cheat. I've learned that I growing mean, up. I, you know, I've cheated on things before. Guess what? I didn't get caught. Because you got to be smart enough not to get caught. Okay, lay it out. What have you cheated on? Uh, I've cheated on a, a test before, <laughs> on, you know, for school. Uh, Teacher's know. not listening, yeah, right? No, 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 Statute of limitations. Can't take away my degree now. Rest in peace, Concordia. No, I mean, I've, I've, I've had stuff where, you know, I wrote down answers, and it worked out where I knew I could look underneath the desk, and I could see my binder, and, you know, may or may not have answers on it. Or I've I love gotten, how you still remember that. I also, one time, I uh, got a text from a kid saying, hey, we got a pop-up uh, quiz in accounting. He sent me the answers but it was a different test, and so I was not prepared, and I failed that test miserably. So it also came back to haunt me. I was dumb, and I oh. and I bought in. So you got to be smart. Not a great friend. Was he, he was trying to help. He was trying to help. Good, good teacher. Yeah, no, Ro- it, was, it was basketball. Basketball teammate. Yeah, they rotated the quizzes. Rotate yeah. the quiz because he knows the basketball team cannot be trusted. Sad day, sad day for Steven on that one. But no, I, I you know, I think you got to be smart enough how to cheat. And the way that Michigan did it, they were so just. Who cares? No one can touch us. We're Michigan football. That, that was on them. That's their fault. I just don't find a problem with all these cheaters because I feel like everyone's doing it. It's like when teams were getting caught, uh, what was it, Tennessee, with the McDonald's bag. They're handing out ca- cash in the McDonald's bag to players. Yeah, that's a dumb way to do it. Don't do it that yeah, way. Cheat better than that. Cheat better. Come Everyone on. Everyone else, Alabama's doing it better than you are, Tennessee. We're not just handing out Burger King bags with cash in it. Do, do it better. Now, the the interesting part to it is, like, you know, Generally, opponents won't call you out on it if it's either they're also doing that type of cheating. Like the whole thing with the flight gate. The Colts hated the Patriots. Everybody hated the Patriots. But the Colts really hated the Patriots. And when they got their butts handed to them in the AFC title game, they were like, okay, we're, we're, this story's coming out. Like they're deflating their footballs. This is ridiculous. And they helped give that a lot of wind. Um, my theory w- would be Ohio State you know, and Michigan, bitter, bitter rivals. Michigan and the science ceiling stuff comes out, you know, I think Michigan's like Ohio state has something to do with this story getting out. And in return, we're going to, you know, try to put them on blast with data storage hacking or something like that. Like that, that to me, this could be a little retaliation. I would love for it to be Ryan day that just came out and tried to start this, to get Harbaugh fired and then have a, you know, have Ohio state have the leg up next exactly. season. I would love for it to be that. That would be, that'd be hilarious. That'd be I great. think it's the and other then, way. I think, I think Ohio state might be culpable here. 
and uh, and and Michigan's trying to get Ryan Day Ryan Day out. Why would you want Ryan Day out though? They dominate Ryan kicking, Day. You gotta keep him there. <laughs> so it's the perfect uh, 2023 story. It feels like you know Dan Wetzel and Yahoo and other people reporting um, on this story of of possible hacking into the cloud of uh, of Michigan or Alabama or who else. But Alabama, Michigan, they're not watching film on their iPads anymore. Hopefully the Ducks. I mean, that's an I don't epic. know if the Ducks are watching on their iPads, but those days are over. That's an ethical question. I mean, Judah, if you're if you're in charge of that, you're in charge of scouting and you found a way, hey, you know what we can hack into uh into our rivals iPad, are you doing it? Like would you do that as a person? I would. Uh <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to win and keep a job. I'm Neil O'Shea. I'm trying I don't to stay know. alive. I don't know. It you know Someone's got to actually get their hands dirty and do it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be smart enough to be able to be that the hands dirty guy. See, I wouldn't. Either. Would I? Would I, would, I plead I would. ignorance and be like, yeah. you know, yeah. There's a lot of people that probably know what's going on that know how to tiptoe around saying they know what's going on. You gotta have a fall guy. That's you got Chris Carter. No, the Chris Carter. You gotta have a fall guy. Chris Carter. <laughs> what a saint. What a saint. Uh, Frank Thomas is alive, by the way. In case anybody was wondering, we'll we'll get to that story in a little bit. Plus, bunch of audio. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano on the Bald Face Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Cazzano on 750 The Game. Hope everyone is enjoying going into the New Year's weekend. John Catano will be back on the show next week after the holiday. We'll see how the Ducks do against Liberty. That line now 16 and a half. So some money coming in on Liberty for what that's worth. I uh, had some late money coming in on Oregon State ahead of kickoff today. Did not work out that way. Uh, the Golden Domers win it going away. Uh, talked about that a little bit. We'll flesh it out. A little bit more, but first, let's get to a little punch it audio, the best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well... This is why it pays to fact check when you're in the news business. Fox News was doing an in-memoriam for athletes who have uh, passed away this year. It may have just been notable people that have passed away in 2023. And it was weird. One would say when we saw Frank Thomas, the big hurt, pop up there and his... uh, his day. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because it's kind of it's kind of sad. <laughs> but it's uh, his dates his dates of life flash up on the screen. And the clip every- <laughs> we have it it's, it has um has an announce announcer call of Frank Thomas getting a hit of the big hurt. So that's how it started in the in memoriam, and then we have a little break, and then it's the uh, coming back and saying, "Well, uh, whoopsies, there's right." <laughs> so, so this is. They, they, they I love put, that you can't get enough of this. I showed you this earlier today, and you just lost it. They put a Frank Thomas highlight in the In Memoriam montage. It said that he had passed away. And I was like, what? He died? That's so sad. 
but he did not. No, some producer just made a bad mistake, and they had to issue a correction for it. So this is the highlight they had and the correction that they issued on the other side. Punch it. Here's Frank Thomas. Fastball. There's a drive deep to right field. We Thank also you. need to quickly uh, issue a correction in the In Memoriam feature that we showed just a few minutes ago. We misidentified the late Frank Thomas, the three-time All-Star for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, the Frank Thomas we showed you, unfortunately, was an also, also a former pro baseball player. He is very much alive. We apologize for that mistake. <laughs> he's also a former pro baseball player. Yeah, never mind. He's one of the greatest hitters ever. Well, I mean, in their defense, Frank Thomas oh. for the Pirates, 286 career home runs. Uh, you know, he played a long time from a uh, 16-year career. Uh, you know, so a couple-time All-Star. Good little player. <laughs> can't can't say that I remember him. He retired in 1966. Uh, but, yeah, Frank Thomas had to put a tweet out also, Judy. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry. My ex-employer, Fox, would be this irresponsible on national TV this morning. Yes, I'm alive and doing well. This blows my mind also. Dude, that is rough stuff. You know, the thing is, this is not breaking news. This is not, oh, a Frank Thomas died, it's breaking news. We got, you have months to put together an in memoriam. By the way, the Frank Thomas who passed away this year, the one that you're referencing that retired in the 60s, when did he pass away? It was in uh, January. January. You had all year to confirm which Frank Thomas passed away. Not the one who literally works for you doing baseball analysis on your set. Incredible. Dude, I thought some more high-level producers would be in charge of putting together the in memoriam. I guess I'm wrong. It must have been an unpaid intern because that's an unpaid intern mistake right there. That is that is terrible, terrible stuff. Terrible what, it, makes, it makes me feel uh, feel like I'm doing a good job with my job. You're crushing but I haven't it. made that mistake yet. Yeah. I mean, we did play Dead or Not Dead that one time. That was fun game, actually. Yeah. And I think you were right on a I lot of them. I was probably right on you a know? lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. But you would know that Frank Thomas was still alive. I knew that the Big Hurt was alive and well. <laughs> and he works for them, too. Or at least worked for them. Recently. It's like, you think if he would have died, like, somebody would have, you know, reached out and be like, Frank, so sorry to hear the news. But you know what? He's feeling great because of Nugenics, man. That would be such a weird... total T. You wake up in the morning, you have, like, you know, hundreds of texts like, Hey, are, are you all right, Frank? Yeah, I'm good. What's up? I just woke up, you know, worked out. That's a breakfast. You're in the in memoriam. Walk the dog. On Fox. Well, Fox said you died. Nugenics oh. should change the, uh, the code, you know? Should, you know, just text Fox News right now to get your, your free total T subscription. Or text RIP. That's just ridiculous, man. Frank Thomas, alive and well. Um, Chauncey Billups, after the loss to the Spurs, punch it. There's an adjustment, period. You know, and there was one timeout in, in the, in the I think in, in early in the fourth quarter when I caught us, guys, we have to understand it looks open, but it's not. We put our head down and we get to the basket, and once we take off, that is not open. This kid is there every single time. So, you know, it's tough to see that. You know, when you're in the you in the middle, you're trying to do your thing. You're looking at one or two guys in front, and he just appears. You know, um, so, you know, uh, I thought it took all of us, like you said, too long to adjust to it. But shoot, man, that's that's the beauty of having somebody like that. You know, um, 
You just never know where he's at, but just just know that he's going to be right there. Talking about going up against Wembenyama, you saw it in person, Stephen. Pretty impressive stuff. There, there were numerous times, especially in the first half, where Portland would drive down the middle of the paint and they would then look up and they'd see Wimbanyama there. And it would either affect the shot or they would have to shoot it, block it, or they would just you know, dribble out and make it play. And it's one of those things that's you can't teach a guy to be seven foot three, seven foot four. And then he has natural ability. Like he has a good IQ in the game of basketball. And the scary part is, Judah, he's still figuring it out. Like he's still figuring out his whole body. We played that sound from Lamarcus yesterday. You know, he's still like he has so many moves. Like he doesn't do the same move twice. He does different moves all the time. So it's Man, he, he is definitely one of one, and uh, you know I'm excited to see what he does the rest of the season and then going into next year because the Spurs obviously are not a very good team, but then you add you know you got some young guys, they got some pieces, you're gonna have a good draft pick. You know this the Spurs team has a chance to be pretty good and really soon. Alabama taking on Michigan in the semifinal Rose Bowl New Year's. Jalen Milrow has been coming on the last few weeks at quarterback. And, uh, you know, he was once upon a time told by Billy O, Billy O'Brien, who was at Alabama at the time. He said, man, you should change positions. You shouldn't be a quarterback. And Milrow said, man, he's channeled that into some motivation, and he's got his team to the playoff. Punch it. What was your reaction to Bill O'Brien telling you that you shouldn't play quarterback? Do you remember how you felt when you said that? How would you feel if I told you you suck? I wouldn't like it. Okay, then. So that's, that's exactly how I felt. You know what I'm saying? So, like, Biggest thing for me, be true to myself and, you know, be, stay the same. You know, nothing changed about me. Only thing that changed me about was I had the opportunity and I seized it. And so um, for me, you know, the biggest thing was just uh, stay true to myself and, uh, you know, I had a bigger purpose than anyone's opinion. Meanwhile, J.J. McCarthy, his quarterback counterpart at Michigan, talking about what kind of game he expects this to be against the Tide. Punch it. You know, it's going to be one of those games where we're going to have to feel it out, you know, the entire game. It's going to be like a boxing match. They're going to come out hard, we're going to come out hard, and then we're going to figure things out as we go. But it's going to be, it's going to have to be a balance where running and the, running the football and passing the football because it's tremendous defense and, you know, just one of the top teams overall in the country. So... Just being able to feel them out and adapting is going to be crucial. I think the total is around 44, you know, spreads around two. So it's it feels like a 24-20 game one way or the other. It really feels like, uh, you know, a, a Big Ten matchup, right? Like, you know, Alabama's SEC, it seems like one of those Big 12 West matchups where it's going to be low score and they're going to fill each other out. But both these teams do have talent on the offensive side. So I think JJ's right on that one. Whoever figures it out, right? It's going to be punch for punch in the first quarter, maybe in the first half. Who can make some adjustments? Is it Harbaugh versus Saban? At that point, maybe you give the give the uh, the advantage to Saban in that situation to make some adjustments at halftime, figure some things out, and go with it. But uh, I, I'm excited for this game, Judah. It's going to be uh, one of those old school battles with you know two of the most prestigious programs in the nation, and uh, it should be a physical game. It should be a physical college football game. A lot of fun. Uh, the Russell Wilson stuff's just just rough and bizarre. Uh, the Broncos. Benching him, that's one thing. Asking him to give up his $37 million injury guarantee is another. And doing so a long time ago and <laughs> threatening him with benching him back in October. That's a whole other thing. I don't know what's going on with the Broncos that, uh, that think this is the best way to handle it. Uh, Dan Orlovsky on ESPN sounded off on it. Punch it. The way that they've handled it has been unprofessional, unprofessional and classless. 
If you want to bench him, you're absolutely entitled to do that, both as the head coach, general manager, and the owner of the football team. To go to him and say, we want you to alter your contract that we signed off on, or else we are going to threaten to bench you and or bench you, is not a way that you handle business in the NFL. It's certainly not a way that you handle a guy that has been a pro and a Super Bowl champion for 10 plus years. It's not a way that you handle a person that was on a Hall of Fame trajectory. And it's for sure not the way you handle someone who's a Walter Payton man of the year. Mm. This is not about feelings. No one's going to feel bad for Russell Wilson because of his money, okay? This is about the way that you treat someone that in many ways has always been a good representative of your organization and your league. You're absolutely entitled to bench him, whether people agree with it or not. To go to him and say, alter your contract or we're going to threaten to sit you is not the way you do business in the NFL. Oh, and by the way, ever since they came to him, which was Russell talked about it today, after beating the Chiefs, going into the bye week, that's when they came up to him and his agent and and basically gave him the threat, we're going to bunch you unless you give up your you know injury guarantee in your contract. And um, then he went out and won a bunch of games in a row, and the Broncos got fired. They won the Monday night game in Buffalo, and uh, Russell was actually playing decent ball, like, like not great ball, but good ball, and taking care of the football, which is a massive part of it, too. Like, you could see him on the come-up. Now, I was naive to think that they would go into Detroit and play well, and they got their butts handed to them a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, it didn't fare for them very well against the Patriots either, so now they're doing it now. But he got them into the playoff race and playoff consideration, and they lost a tough game in Houston as well. But I agree. I think the way the Broncos have handled this has really been shameful. But you know me too. Like, I don't think Russell Wilson is that great of a quarterback anymore. I think his perception, you know, people are going to come to his side with this one, as they probably should from a narrative standpoint. People are like Ryan Clark was saying, oh, he would never treat Drew Brees this way. I'm like, you know why? Because Drew Brees is one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever lived. And he went out there and won with you. He won a Super Bowl with you. Rustin won a Super Bowl with you. Drew Brees' play never deteriorated to the to the valley that Russell's in right now. Like, there's obviously performance differences between the two. And by the way, there there've definitely been validated reports about accountability problems or lack of accountability with Russell Wilson in his own play in the Broncos locker room. Like in the Seahawks locker room before that. Like There's definitely enough evidence and data points out there to suggest that Russell Wilson is not a perfect teammate, not a perfect human being. Obviously, none of us are. The way the Broncos have threatened to bench him like this and doing so back in October, that is classless. That leads me to think that, man, things are not all well with this new ownership structure with the the Walton Penner family, the Walmart family. Things are a little weird over there in Denver now. Yeah, it was after the Chiefs win, which was their first win over the Chiefs since 2015. Like, it's not like the Broncos have been dominating. You know, since, seems since like then. a perfect time to go yeah. threaten our hey. multi-million dollar quarterback. Thanks for the win. Go yeah. away now. Uh, yeah, it's it's one. It's weird, man. It's weird. But you know, from the Broncos' standpoint, I get it. You know, you don't. He's not worth the money that he's making. So you're going to try to do this. And we've seen guys in the NFL before restructure contracts 
And I don't blame the Broncos for asking. I don't think it's right. I wouldn't do that. But I also don't blame Russ for saying no. Like, I wouldn't restructure if I'm Russ either. Hell like, no. I'm taking that money, man. And, and he, he earned that money. He got that contract. They gave it to him. So it's just and really this weird. Is not, and it's just like it's if he gets injured, you know, right. to the point of not being able to play next year. Has Russell Wilson ever struck you as a guy that's fragile, misses games due to injury? I'll answer. No. He plays in almost every game, probably in games that he probably should be playing in. He came back way too early from his finger injury in 2021 to play for the Seahawks. The dude lives to play football. His commitment, you can't question it, you know? And, and so, I don't know. I think the, the Broncos are bizarre in the way that they've handled it. And they're already going to be footing a decent amount of this bill. Cap hit's going to be hard. And, you know, they're the ones that <laughs> swung big and... No one has swung and missed harder in a trade than the Denver Broncos have with this one. And a lot of it's on Russ, too, because he is not as good as, uh, as you know, he, he thought he would be. And like Michael Sean Dugar said in hour one, he thought the grass would be greener. And besides the direct deposit hitting, the grass has not been nearly as green as it was in Seattle. Yeah, it, it, you know, it seems like the Broncos are winning in spite of Russell Wilson, right? It's almost not as bad as the Tebow situation when they were winning with Tim Tebow, but... He, it's not like Russ is out there winning games, right? He, he's playing okay. He's playing well enough to win because the defense was playing so well. Defense is playing great. And run I, the football a little bit better. Definitely the best O-line that he's had in some time. Right. And so Russ's contract is guaranteed $39 million into next season, no matter what. If he's on the team or yeah. not, he gets $39 million. And then the next season, the 2025 salary is $37 million guaranteed uh, unless he cannot pass a physical on the fifth day of the new year. So they're trying to change that for the next season. So, again, from the Broncos' point of view, I don't blame them because they want to get off of that contract. He's not worth well, the contract. They're going to part ways with him. So what's going on is is that, you know, you're asking, why would they want him to get ready, rid of the injury guarantee if he never gets hurt, basically, right? And the reason is if they can release him post-June 1st, yeah. they can spread out the cap hit over two years. But they have to guarantee him his, you know, his salary for two years, right? There's a certain amount of guarantees that kick in, as to your point, after the fifth day of the new league year, which is in the middle of March. So they're like, well, how do we how do we make this possible? We got to have to make him a, a post-June 1st, you know, cut. But you can't do that without him lifting the injury, you know, guarantees and all that. And now it's evident. You know, Russell is going to try to stick it to Denver any way he can, as he should as at he this should. point. Yeah, that's the thing. They're going to cut him. They're going to eat the losses. And whoever he signs with next, he should take just the vet minimum in order to make Denver pay the rest of his contract. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't blame Russ in this situation. Get the money while you can. Um, and, and we've seen that in lots of instances, the NFL being a cutthroat biz. And, and they're, they're trying to get their money. They're trying to recoup that loss that they have made yeah. uh, with all the draft picks they got rid of for Russ. And this is not going to work out. So. You know, did Denver go about it the wrong way? Yeah, probably uh, right after the win against the Chiefs. And I, I just think it's kind of a weird situation to do that in. But, you know, it's going to work out where uh, Russ gets out of Denver and hopefully, you know, he, he latches on to whether it's another starting gig or, you know, a good backup gig. Uh, he could kind of, you know, rewrite his career the last couple seasons. Yeah, that will be definitely a storyline because I would love for him to get back to a level that was closer to 2021 before his injury. Um than the Hackett Peyton era Broncos. No I, I don't know you... if that's in him. I I just I want to see it. I, I would love to see that little last ascent to his career 
And maybe he is a Hall of Famer. I don't really know. I'll have to think about it. I mean, more, no matter what you think of Russ, like, nine-time Pro Bowler. There's not a lot of guys have been to that many Pro Bowls. I think he's a Hall of Famer. No matter what you think of him, I think he's totally fake when he talks to people. And we all know that he is. Like, he's never gotten in trouble. Like, you know, he does have a family. Like, he seems pretty. And he like he likes his wife. Like, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He seems like a, just a weird guy, right? And so for that, yeah, like, there I, was something going on with his foundation this year, and I couldn't I couldn't tell if that was him not knowing what was going on with his foundation or if that was other people just right. trying to pile on. It could be a little bit of both. But that that's the only other thing, like, from a moral standpoint that you could take issue with the guy with. <laughs> Outside of that, he's just been a little phony and weird with teammates. A lot phony, yeah. A lot phony. <laughs> and no, so, no and so for that, like, I, I wanted... used to love the guy. Like, I, yeah. you know, he was my idol for a while. Dude there. was a baller. Loved like, him. The Seahawks, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He just, you know, he doesn't have his fastball anymore. But I would love to see him get another chance. Uh, whether it's a backup or another starting gig, because you know I, you've seen the, some of the quarterbacks this season. Uh, you know I think there's still there's still a spot, there's still a market for a guy like Russell Wilson who can come yeah. in and not make mistakes. And we yeah. see that with Denver. Like Denver technically is still in the playoff race. I mean you're looking at what if he's on the Jets? Like the Jets are right in the playoff race. You have to see what Joe Flacco's doing. So I, I think there's still a market for a guy like that. Battle three four one seven seventy five seventy five. Uh, get a couple more NFL thoughts, plus Ducks Liberty coming up on Monday. We'll get an official uh, pick from us on that. Five at five as well in the final hour. Spencer McLaughlin uh, will talk some Ducks with us in the final hour as well. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano here on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Cazzano on 750 The Game. Liberty coming up on Monday. We'll talk to Spencer McLaughlin a little bit about that. NFL games this week. We got one tomorrow. Lions-Cowboys in Big D. 11-4 and Lions going to the playoffs. Winners of the NFC North for the first time in 30 years. That is wild to me. Um, last time they won a playoff game, by the way, was, uh, was 93 as well. So we got to go back a ways. What were the um, last playoff appearances for the Lions? I do think I remember. I will say the 2014 playoffs. The Lions were a wild card and went to Dallas, ironically enough, where they play on Saturday, and lost to the Tony Romo Cowboys in a close game. Romo beat Stafford in a close game. I remember there was a controversial like defensive holding penalty late in that game that helped uh, seal the win for the Cowboys. The reason I, I think I remember it was 14 was because that was the playoffs where we had three consecutive, absolute, bizarre, classic playoff games involving previous teams. Lions and Cowboys was a classic. The next week was Cowboys-Packers at Lambeau in the Divisional. The Des Bryant non-catch <laughs> at Lambeau. So the Packers win that game. The next week after that was the insane NFC Championship in Seattle with the Packers losing to the Seahawks. Russell throwing five interceptions and winning the game in overtime despite being down 19-7 to with five minutes left. Hell yeah. Is that your final answer for the uh, answer there? Uh, yeah, I guess so. It's, it is, that is incorrect. Uh, that is their second last appearance. They did play the Cowboys uh, January 4th, 2015. You were right about that. 
They played your Seahawks. Oh, I, that, sorry. I, that wasn't the last time they were there. I oh, they said the last playoff appearance they had. The last two they had was that one in the wild card in okay. Seattle. That was 2016 season. Yeah. Wild card in Seattle. Stafford had a finger injury, so he wasn't even good. But they were, the Lions were actually pretty bad in that game, in that 16 wild card game. Cause, 26-16. Yeah. Golden Tate was on the Lions. He was terrible. Paul Richardson. Had a touchdown catch. Yes, he did. There's a good it man. was one-handed. It was one of the greatest. That guy was always supposed to be really good. Yeah, second rounder out of Colorado. Fast. He, very fast. Very fragile. You know, <laughs> turned out he wasn't as good as he, as he uh, should be, but he made that one-handed catch. A second Thomas Rawls mentioned on the show today, 27 carries, 161 yards. <sighs> that was a magical time. Anytime you get an undrafted <laughs> running back out of Central Michigan uh, running with power, you got to take it. Yeah, that was a that was a time. And then the Seahawks just missed the playoffs in 2017. So, you know, after that 14 season, uh, then they, you know, they traded for Jimmy Grant after that, traded Max Unger. That was a tough one, even though Jimmy Jimmy played pretty well later on. But um, it wasn't the same without Big Max at center. Just wasn't the same. Uh, then, you know, the they... They obviously had the Percy Harvin trade. He barely played for him, but helped him win a Super Bowl randomly. Um, I'm just thinking of these big midseason swings. You know, the Jamal Adams was a big trade in July. That has not worked out, obviously. Uh, this Leonard yikes. Williams thing is, yeah, yikes. This Leonard Williams thing, Leonard has had a few games where he's been an absolute star, so that's that's helped. And it's also helped to uh, win the last two games and have a chance. But Steelers in town, you know, it's not like we hate the Steelers or anything for robbing us of a Super Bowl along with paying off the reps. But, you know, what are you going to do? Come on, Jeremy Stevens. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for nothing, Jeremy Stevens. Uh, final hour, 5 of 5, coming up next here on the BFT. BFT. Now. Built by high-caliber millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball faced truth. How's the uh, bowl season pick'em going for you, Stephen? Uh, I'm in a group of about 10 to 12 you know, we, we do a uh, college football pickup throughout the year, which has about 25 people. But the bowl, you know, people don't want to do the bowl games, which I understand. It, it's so, you can go either way. I'm doing pretty good, though. I'm in third place. Uh, I needed Iowa State to win. They didn't. Mm. So, there's been, but I'm right there. I'm right there with, I believe, 14 bowl games left. I'm going to have to pick an upset or two. Um, and it's going to have to be a game where I know that teams ahead of me are picking other teams. Maybe I have to go Liberty or something, but... I won't. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm right in it. I'm right in it, Judah, and I'm uh, hoping to get in the top two. Top two gets paid, so we got to gotta get in the top two. Who do you got third. in this Ohio State-Missouri Cotton Bowl Classic? You know, I got uh, Ohio State, and I'm hoping – I'm going to look right now. I hope a lot of people pick Missouri because they were favored, but then it, uh, the line switched. I got Ohio State, even though with uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. out – not too worried about it. They, oh, interesting. Ohio Missouri State, was favored at one point? They were because uh, Ohio State had a lot of opt-outs. Kyle McCord, the quarterback, no longer with the team. You know, he transferred. Uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., obviously not playing. But, uh, yeah, I, I got Ohio State in this one. Because they're favored now, I think, by like they are, yeah. four, maybe. Something like that. So, that's a that's a fun one. I can't tell if Ohio State, Ryan Day was in the middle of the uh, pregame scrum there just 
firing up his his team. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign for for Ohio State. But both teams wearing their home uniforms, Missouri in black and uh, Ohio State in red. That's kind of cool. Uh, I'm okay with that. As long as both teams aren't wearing their road uniforms or you as long as you're not wearing white at home, I just think that's dumb unless you're the Cowboys. Um, but I'll be the old man on my lawn with that one. In the meantime, uh, we'll talk to Spencer McLaughlin ahead of Ducks Liberty. That's coming up in our next segment. But first, as we always do at this time, let's do the five at five. The five at five. Number one. Well, Oregon State, Judah, they took on Notre Dame and the Tony the Tiger. Sun Bowl down in El Paso. It was a 40-8 to win for the Fighting Irish earlier today. Oregon State, they finished their season with three straight losses. Finished up at 8-5, and five, possibly falling out of the final top 25 when that comes out. Oregon State, of course, they were 8-2, and two, ranked as high as number 11. Uh, it was the top-ranked two-loss team in the nation before those two losses to end the season, then the Notre Dame loss. Uh Win total for Oregon State was around eight, some eight and a half, maybe some seven and a half, depending on when you got it, but right around there. So right at the win total, um, you know, Oregon State season over, but would you call it a success for the Oregon State Beavers football program? <laughs> um, no, but not with any degree of, you know, animosity or vitriol or anything like that. It's just, it's just one of those seasons you'll never forget, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. If look. I would say the Arizona loss is probably as disappointed as I got in Jonathan Smith on the field. Like, I thought he coached his own team out of that game. That was really disappointing. Um, but let's go Let's go highlight some positive things. Um, I would say Aiden Childs was a positive of this year, except that he's not there anymore. So, I don't know. Damian Martinez is coming back. That's good. And you've got controlling assets, or you've got control of the, uh, you know, assets and liabilities of the conference. Like, that's good. Outside of that, you got a schedule put together. That's good. Um, Scott Barnes had a hell of a year himself, physically. Uh, he's okay. And, you know, he's a great leader, and he didn't take the UW job. That's that's good. There's a path forward out of this. And if you had asked me that on August 4th, or whenever the world started coming down in the Pac-12, I wasn't sure there was going to be a path out of this. There's a path out of this. But was it a successful season strictly on the field? You know, unfortunately, we can't really talk about on the field stuff as much as we wanted to, especially when one of your losses was to your rival with your coach already halfway out the door. Well, it's so hard but, to talk about just the on field stuff with all the, with all the off field stuff. Like you have to consider that as well. Like, you have it's, to it's because it, imp- to. it impacted the on field stuff. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Especially that Civil War game. When things were relatively neutral, I would say going 3-0 in non-conference was good. And, you know, losing to Wazoo stung. But coming back and beating Utah in a big game, um, you know, having your way with a couple of those other programs that you, that you should beat. Cal, the DJ performance there was awesome. Um, beating Stanford comfortably. Beating Coach Prime on the road comfortably. That was good. But at the end of the day, the biggest games, you know, the Beavers were not able to to win them outside of the Utah game, and that hurts. And, you know, they're reinventing themselves now and getting a new identity. So, you know, best of luck to Trent Bray, and obviously we'll be covering it and talking about it, but it's a much different reality now for the Beavers than it, it was even at this time last year. And that's saying something because things were still up in the air this time last year as well. But 
Not the way on which they wanted to go out, but credits to Notre Dame. They wanted to be there, and they wanted to leave no doubt that they were a better program and a better team, and they absolutely did that. Number two. Well, we saw Washington dominate Oregon in the Pac-12 title game, and then Oregon kind of you know, made it close at the end. Um, and after the game, we saw a lot of the players saying, I don't know why we were the underdogs. You know, where are the undefeated ones? We're the ones that already beat Oregon. Why were we the underdogs? It doesn't make sense. Well, Washington is still feeling confused about that going into the college football playoff. Their star edge rusher, Braylon Trice, he said today during his media availability, I think it's crazy. He said, quote, I want to go out there and smack them. You know, I don't want it to be a close game. I want it to be pretty lopsided in our favor. And quote, then he was asked why he thought Washington continued to be treated like an underdog despite all the wins. Trice said, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. That makes me sound very uh, feel very confident in Washington that they think that they can go out and actually, you know, maybe smack around Texas a little bit and they're feeling healthy. I, I think the month leading up to it is going to get their offense healthier. But that defense, Judah, we talked about that lead into the Oregon game. Like, we didn't know if their defense was for real, but the last half of the season, that defense has been really good. And so maybe that defense is going to step up and be really good and Washington gets to the national championship game. Yeah, I mean, that defense, everyone wants to say it's it's bad, but Trice is a good player. You know, ZTF is a good player. Um, that 91 guy led to led to Gasanoa, or however you say it. He constantly shows up in the run game and pushing the pocket inside. You know, those are the three biggest impact guys. It's definitely not a UW defense that we were accustomed to seeing when Jimmy Lake was running things. And I'm talking about this in, in a good sense for Jimmy Lake because he could run a defense. He just was uh, in over his head as a head coach. Um you know, the secondary guys that they put in the NFL, the Elijah Moldens of the world, you know, th- th- they're not there. But they still got enough impact players to be able to, you know, make some splash plays. The other thing I just think about is it, just like, you know, a month to prepare for these games. Give me the two coaches you would trust the mo- the most out of the remaining four. Who would they be for you? It's DeBoer and Saban. Me too. Probably in that order too. And... You're really going to say, oh, it's going to be Sark and Harbaugh that make it to the national title? Like, we're going to get a Sark-Harbaugh national championship game? Now the hell we are. And yet, those are the two teams that are favored. I think there's massive opportunity on Washington. I think everybody's still sleeping on them because they haven't looked impressive enough, I guess. But you're giving me a month to get healthy. Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix Jr. I am going to bet on the skill position. And UW has better skill position talent than Texas. Give me the Huskies, man. I think they win. I think they go to the national championship game. By the way, this is Josh Pate talking about it. Punch it. Most of the country still doesn't even know who you are. And so most of the country, I'm telling you this is coming, is going to equate you to last year's TCU. You're purple. And that's about all they'll need. And they think you're the fourth best team in this thing. And they are going to think to themselves, there will be a sizable talent mismatch on the field Monday night in New Orleans. And it's up to you to prove them wrong. Now, I've watched Washington's receivers up close. They don't take a backseat to anyone. Washington's offensive line was the best in the country this year. They just won the Joe Moore Award. Washington does not take a backseat in terms of physicality along the lines of scrimmage to anyone I watched him play this year. And you know what else? On paper, and this stuff right here, it should have happened multiple times. It should have happened against Oregon both times, and it didn't. It didn't surprise me. I picked Oregon to win both those games. 
Yeah, Washington's beating Texas. I feel very good about this. I do too. Like I, I, yeah. I don't. I think Washington should be favored. I think they should. I'm gonna, I'll go there. I think I'd, I'd favor them. Well, what's the line at right now? Texas four. Four. I mean, that's just bigger brand, right? I mean, if you're Vegas, the reason you set the line is to try to get equal money on both sides. Relatively. Is it crazy to think that I think Washington could win by double digits in this game? No, I, because you said it earlier. Anything really can happen in this game. Like, it's possible Texas has just got ridiculous dudes on defense. Like, if you think about the reason Oregon lost that title game, they got banged up at the worst positions, right? Julio Florence, um, you know, they had multiple corners that couldn't go and couldn't finish the game. They got back in the game. They had the lead. And then UW went and retook the lead. Why? Because they were picking on... Oregon's lack of depth in the secondary. If you're telling me Texas has got, you know, alpha secondary players that can just hang with UW's McMillan, Polk, and Adunze, and Penix hold them to under 35 points, then yeah, obviously Texas has a chance to win if they are explosive as all get out on offense. I don't know that, that that's the case. Now, I could be biased the other way just because I've seen a ton of UW and I've seen some Texas this year. But it's it, it really comes down to DeBoer and Grubb against Sark and Pete Kwiatkowski, which is hilarious. I mean, there's so much UW in this game. It's crazy. Kwiatkowski, the former Sark DC at Washington. He's been there a long time. And Cal. Um, it's nuts. This was the Alamo Bowl last year. Like, we just saw this in a way. Like, both teams are obviously much better than they were. But UW hasn't lost... In forever, Stephen. Like, what is it? A twenty-game win streak now? Almost. It feels that way. They haven't lost since Arizona State in October of 2022. Like, that's crazy. And we're still going to say, yeah, they're not going to beat Texas in a big game on a neutral site. No, look, give me, give me Washington, give me Alabama, and I think we get the Ryan Grubb, Nick Saban uh, connection in the national title game in Houston later on. That's the way it feels to me. Now you're you're coming out on. Uh, you still like Michigan against I like, Alabama? I like which... Michigan over Alabama, and I like I like Washington over Texas. So I think we're going to get a Washington Michigan uh, Big Ten Pac twelve yeah matchup. Well, I'm sorry to Huskies fans because the fact that we feel so good about them probably means Texas is going to look not good. a good side. Yeah, not a good side. Number three. Well, Russell Wilson, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but he was asked to take. Well, readjust his contract after he beat the Broncos or beat the Chiefs back uh, in what month was that? I can't. I can't just blow. Uh, they beat him uh, at the end of October. End of I October, think. yeah. And it was Before first time the bye week. First time they beat the Chiefs since 2015. He was yeah, approached long time to, to adjust his salary guarantee in his contract, and if he didn't, he would be benched for the rest of the season. And Wilson said that today that the Broncos approached him about waiving that guarantee in his five-year, 242.6 million dollar contract. That he signed back in 2022. Wilson's guaranteed $39 million in 2024, whether he's on the team or not, and then he'll be guaranteed another $37 million if he could not pass a physical on the fifth day of the new year league year in March. Broncos tried to get him to waive that. Wilson said, quote, they definitely told me I was going to be benching all that. That whole bye week, I didn't know what was going to be the case. I was going to be ready to play. I wanted to go to Buffalo and beat Buffalo. I wasn't going to remove the injury guarantee. This game is such a physical game. I've played up 12 years and all that, end quote. Yeah, I agree with Russell. It's like, what the hell do you expect me to do? Like, it was a mutually signed contract. No one held you hostage with your millions of dollars, Walton Penner family. Like, what, what do you think? 
Um, bad look for the Broncos. What do you th- what do you think of the way Sean Payton's handled this, Stephen? Because I feel like I'm on I'm on a little bit of a different side than most people, but from your vantage point, well, it, it's weird to me that the way Russell played, people turned on him, right? Like Russ was this guy that like, all right, yeah, we can root for him. And then last season, the way he played and his weird commercials that he had and just everything that came out, he was kind of turned into you know not the villain, but just like a joke. And now we're all kind of back on Russell Wilson's side, I feel like. Like, Sean Payton turned him back into a guy that we could cheer for and root for him. Like, no, Russ is in the right in this situation. Like, Sean Payton, you're in the wrong. So, I don't know. I understand from Sean Payton's point of view, he doesn't want Russell Wilson to be his quarterback. He wants to get out of that contract and save as much money as possible. I wouldn't go about it this way, but this is what the NFL teams do. So, I I don't blame Sean Payton. I definitely don't blame Russ for not, you know, giving up any of that injury guarantee, but... I don't know. It seems a little shady to go about it this way and just say, you know what? Please do this or you're just gone. Like, we can't have you. Well, and Sean's been very harsh visibly with Wilson. Like, yeah. he was chewing him out on the sideline in Detroit. He obviously doesn't like the guy. Before the season, he was basically laying down the law. And uh, I don't really have a problem with that. I'll be honest. It seems like everybody else, like Ryan Clark called Sean Payton a thug. Like, what are we doing? Well, like, you said this. When they signed Jared Stidham, you said, well, Sean Payton wants to play Jared Stidham. He doesn't want to play Russ. You've, well, you've told me that off the air numerous times. Like Jared, the Jarrett Stidham signing was a you know guaranteed contract for multiple years. You were saying Sean Payton wants to play that guy, and it just worked out where Russ won a couple games, and then it was hard to be like, yeah, we can't even bench this guy. I will say Sean Payton wants to win. That's what he wants to do, and he's a Bill Parcells guy. People forget this. Deep down, he's a disciplinarian. We think of him offensive innovator, Drew Brees, like all this stuff, and that's true. But he's a disciplinarian head coach. He's not a Sean McVay, relate to your players, Mike McDaniel, Kevin O'Connell guy. That's not who he is. He's a disciplinarian offensive mind, and he's done this for a long, long time. So when he sees a quarterback behaving in a way that doesn't you know, measure up to his performance, he's going to call it out on it. When the quarterback's bringing in his private you know, coaching guru, to have his own office space in the team facility and have his own office away from the rest of his team's locker room, he's going to put the kibosh on it. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Are you kidding me? Like, that's where the money does come into it a little bit for me. Like, Russell's making a a ton. His performance does not nearly validate the contract that he's making, just from a performance standpoint. So, yeah, you you can afford to keep him accountable. This Jared Stidham, you know, move, I think Sean Payton is going to feel a little bit of freedom with it only because Jared, frankly, who knows what kind of quarterback he is. He's done, he did good things against the Niners last year in that Raiders-Niners game at the end of the year. But he's not going to shock the world. He's not going to be this random revelation and probably won't be the starter in Denver next year anyway. Maybe he will be. It's going to be an audition for him of some kind. Um. But at the end of the day, Russell was getting too predictable, and he wasn't the reason Denver was winning games at any point, even on the win streak. But he helped keep them from losing some games. Um, Holding on to the football is a big reason why, and he did a decent job of that. Just eight picks against, or seven picks maybe, you know, and 17 touch or no, 27 touchdowns. He had a lot of touchdowns this year. He was playing good ball. So, But I don't really have as big a problem with the way that Peyton has treated Wilson, in my opinion. The, the, The bigger problem I have is, Threatening to bench him with taking away the guarantees, you know, and stuff like that. That's why the NFLPA gets involved, and that probably had to do some with Peyton, but some with the ownership as well.
it's just messy, messy over there. Number four. Well, two weeks ago, the New York Post, they reported that NBC was removing Al Michaels from its NFL playoff coverage. Mm. And in Michaels' first public comments since that happened, he did tell USA Today that he plans to finish his Amazon contract, which has one more year remaining on it. Uh, And most importantly, Michaels made clear how much he still loves doing his job. Michael said he feels good, feels healthy, feels fine. He told Amazon he'd do three years. Next year will be three, and he's definitely doing that, and then he'll see after that. Michael said, quote, I still love this job. I still get a charge out of going into the stadium and watching the best in the world do what they do. I'm still really happy, so that's a big thing, end quote. Uh, so it looks like Al Michaels will be back with Amazon next season. I mean, I've been a little critical of him. I don't feel like he's done a great job with the Amazon broadcast. Him and Kirk Herbstreit just seem like a weird, weird combo together. But, you know, it is what it is. Al Michaels, he's a legend. I feel like he can kind of call his shots when he wants to be done. Well, I think about this stuff all the time. <laughs> you know, I know you do. That's broadcast, why I to bring chemistry, broadcasting dynamics, play-by-play color guys. Obviously, we watch a ton of football, so it's very visible. So Al going on the record with USA Today. First of all, Al's done. There's no more Thursday games, so he's done. Uh, and not doing the playoff game. I thought not doing the playoff game was a little surprising um, because NBC, I thought, had that agreement. But I think NBC looked at it and said, look, Al is getting a little long in the tooth. And frankly, it's been amazing that Al's been as sharp as he's been for how old he is. Like He's pretty old. Like He's up there. What is he? He's not Biden, but he's up there, upper 70s, isn't he? You know, something like that. Um so he's up there. And he's actually, you know, he's he 79. Yeah, so close. For being 79, he's actually pretty darn good for 79. I will say that. He's been pretty sharp. It's funny because Herbie, Kirk Herbstreit, I've been critical of him. The last couple of weeks, he's done a better job. He did good in the Seahawks-Cowboys game. He was pretty good last night as well. Um you know, and I can be a little hypercritical of these color guys because I think they rest on their laurels a lot. Troy Aikman went through this where I didn't learn anything from Troy Aikman for about 10 years. And then the ESPN move gave him some juice and fire back, uh, the Monday night move. And he's actually been pretty good. Greg Olson, I think, does a really nice job. Really nice job. And if he gets ousted for Tom Brady, that's tough because Greg does great work. I think Tom should get there. Uh Matt Ryan was part of the CBS crew that did Titan Seahawks. Very good. I like Matt Ryan a lot, and I have not watched a lot of Matt Ryan games. He's in a three-man booth there with CBS. They do a good job. The CBS booth that's got uh, James Lofton and Jay Feely, it's, it's sneaky good. That's like their fourth-string crew. I really – and uh, and uh, I think with Shusen or somebody else. No, Tom McCarthy does the play-by-play on that. That's a sneaky good crew. So you see where my mind goes. Like – because I'm, I'm very analytical with who is delivering the football to me. Um, Chris Myers needs to go. Okay, <laughs> this, you know, Hopefully he doesn't do play. He does it with Robert Smith. There's a reason they got the Panthers-Packers game last week. You know, uh, Chris Myers, not, I don't need any more Chris Myers play-by-play in my life. Um, but Al, you know, this is going to be a, a – I think next year is probably going to be his last year. I actually might be surprised if he does stick around for it, but I think he will. Because he deserves to have a swan song. He's been an iconic, legendary voice of the biggest football moments of my lifetime. And um, there was a string of Super Bowls where NBC couldn't get a bad Super Bowl. They had a string of, like, insanely good Super Bowls. Steelers-Cardinals was the first one they had in 08. Insane Super Bowl. Then they had Giants-Patriots in 11. 
Insane. Giants win that one. Crazy game. Then they had Seahawks, Pats, and 14. Another epic Super Bowl. Then they had Eagles, Pats, and 17. Epic. Like, they had a run of just absolutely epic Super Bowls. And, uh, man, Al called them all, and he was great at it. And he, he will be a Hall of Famer. But he's definitely, the tread on the tires is thin at this point with Al. So, you know, that that's the way it goes. But they make way. Noah Eagle is a good one, rising up and comer. So he'll he'll do a great job with the uh, playoff game they have. Was that five? That was four. That was five. All right. Number four. five. Uh, Judah, I don't know if you saw this. Mikel Bridges, the star player of the Brooklyn Nets, averaging 21 points, five rebounds a game. Uh, there was a TikTok of him coming out the other day. He said he eats Chipotle every single day, and he's done it for 10 years. Here's what it sounded like. I've this every day, and it's been about how many years since I've been eating Chipotle? Since 2013-14, so about 10 years. Still been on a heavy to this day. I have friends and family that teases me a little bit about it. It's too fire to not have it every single time, so they don't disappoint. I love to take a bite. Okay. Fire. So my bowl order, I get white rice, no beans, double chicken, medium and mild salsa, corn and lettuce. Oh, I used to get the hot salsa. I don't know if y'all know that hot salsa. I don't know what they did to it in this past couple years, but I'll just take one bite. I'll just be like just chugging water and it still ain't helping. It'll just be like painful eating a bowl. You know, I felt soft because I love spicy food and I'm just like, bro, I've been eating this hot sauce for all these years. Rest piece of the hot sauce. Mikel Bridges is eating Chipotle ten, every day, every day, Judah, for 10 years. Um, I love Chipotle. I think Chipotle is really good. I don't know that I could do it every single day for 10 years, but uh, it's amazing you know, how good a shape he's in and how good of a basketball player he is that he eats Chipotle every day. Yeah, I don't know what the psychological association is, but he gets too much dopamine from Chipotle. He got a little too excited when he was taking bites. I also don't think he's done it literally every day. When he goes on vacation, he's not eating Chipotle. And he's, and he's Chipotles going. are everywhere, though. My wife said the exact same thing, but they're international, aren't they? This is like when I say, like, oh, I watch that movie every year on Christmas. There's some Christmases I miss watching Charlie Brown or something. I feel like you could go anywhere. But Chipotle. I actually just watched Charlie Brown this morning. So. He, he could travel literally anywhere and get a Chipotle. He probably could. I don't think it's been every day. But he did, he did get some cred when he's doing the hot salsa thing. Because that, that's something someone that's eating it every day would say. Now, the key was he doesn't get beans, doesn't get cheese, doesn't get sour cream. So there's a lot of the... Then why the, eat it? You the, know sodium, I mean? the sodium that he doesn't get in there. Still do the guac and the queso. Got to do that. Uh, Spencer McLaughlin joins us next, talking duck celebrity. We'll see if uh, he eats Chipotle today. That's what I'm going to get on my way home now. Uh, thanks for that. That's easy. Spencer McLaughlin's next on the BFT. <laughs> Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Final show of 2023. Thanks for being along for the ride. Shooter newbie Stephen Vaughn in for John Canzano. Let's go to the phone lines now. Talk to uh, a guest who has filled in as a host on this show before as well. Spencer McLaughlin, contributor 750thegame.com on all things Oregon Ducks. Also locked on Ducks, locked on Pac-12. Spencer, what's going on, my friend? How are you? I'm doing great, guys. It is uh, kind of weird that we got the last show of 2023 already, but it's you know, I, I know a lot of people like to dump on bowl season nowadays, but I keep watching bowl games and I keep being entertained over and over again, and I'm 
unclear what the problem with this particular product is. We got a pop tart with a face that's going all over the internet, and I can't get enough of it. And it's got teams like Arizona making a statement as they go into the Big 12. So there's a whole range of stuff to watch for, and I, I can't get enough of it. And pretty soon, college football is going to be over. And we won't have any games to watch at all. They'll be sitting around going, boy, I wish we had some games to watch, even if they didn't mean anything. Especially this week, in between uh, Christmas and New Year's, I feel like this is the, the ripe time for, for bowl games and yeah. good bowl games. Unfortunately, we did not get a good one in El Paso today. Uh, I'm not sure how much of Beavers Irish you were able to catch, but final score spoke for itself as the Beavers close up the chapter on 2023, and now it's full steam ahead into the Trent Bright era. Yeah, it is, and that was certainly not how Oregon State wanted to end the 2023 season for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, their head coach and a bunch of players have gone, and everything feels like it's, it's just so up in the air and uncertain, and it would have been nice to have something to kind of hold on to to feel good about, but, you know, with, with – with, with the important context of Bengal Branson was back there and he's unlikely to be back there if they brought in Giovanni McCoy and Jabari Johnson via the portal this, this offseason, that, that had to just leave a seed of doubt in the minds of some Beaver fans of, wait, how, how big of a step back or could we be taken here? I mean, that was, you know, no, no Josh Gray. They didn't have their other starting right tackle whose name is eluding me right now, but I know he's an all-conference guy and um, – but, but those are the sorts of players who you're not going to have next year either. And playing against a, a good but not great Notre Dame team like that, I, I think was uninspiring and frustrating. Now, the, the silver lining there is Trent Bray was not the head coach. You, you had a position coach, you know, Coach Fonson uh, out there at – or, or uh, Hinton, Coach Hinton out there as the interim. And it wasn't the guy who's going to be on the sidelines next year when Oregon State – plays their first game. So that's the optimism I think that can be provided. But, I mean, this was an 8-2 football team that was ranked number 11 in the college football playoff rankings. They were ranked in every single poll, everywhere that you look inside the top 15. And, and now all of, a sudden, all of a sudden you look up and it was an 8-5 season, and that just doesn't feel like what was possible and what was you know, really happening on the field up until the last few weeks. But Speaking of what's possible and how things uh, kind of fell, you know, Oregon finds itself in the Fiesta Bowl. You know, we've been able to talk about it for a little while now, but now the game's almost here. Coming up on Monday morning, 10 a.m. kickoff out here on the West Coast for the Ducks and Liberty. And Bo Nix is going to play. Bucky Irving's going to play. Uh, I guess a couple of game time decisions with guys like Birch and Florence. But overall, what do you make of the fact that a couple notable players are going for Oregon? And you got an opponent in Liberty that's a little bit hard to get up for, but at the same time, you want to put an exclamation point on what's been a, a pretty good year for the Oregon Ducks. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a fantastic year. It didn't end the way that Oregon fans wanted it to. The team didn't reach their full potential, but you know, to look back and say that the season was a failure or, or some huge massive letdown, no, USC's season was a failure. Like that, that's, that's what a failure of a season looks like compared to what your expectations were in the preseason. So I think that distinction is an important one to make for Oregon fans. But, you know, this, this game I think just depends on, on Oregon's motivation level. 
I think that's going to determine the final score because the talent gap here is pretty sizable. You know, Liberty runs the ball very well. Uh, their quarterback is a good runner and solid thrower as well. Uh, Quentin Cooley is a good running back, good physical running back, and they, they get creative with their triple option looks with loaded backfields and motion and counter plays. And I, I think that they've done a really good job making that their identity on offense and executing week in and week out. But they haven't faced a team like Oregon uh, at all. It's a big point spread for a reason. But I think the margin of victory depends upon, you know, how long Bo Nix maybe plays. I would love to see Austin Novosad get run in this game. And I think it also depends upon, you know, how fired up the Ducks can be because, yeah, you have the letdown against Washington for the second time, and that takes the wind out of your sails. And you're certainly missing a couple of key players, all-conference, all-American guys, and JPJ, Troy Franklin, and Kyrie Jackson. But, you know, it, it, it's just kind of a, a mystery right now. We won't know until we see it how fired up they can be. Obviously, Landing has been positive and upbeat with, you know, his statements about, yeah, we're excited to play and the opportunity and everything. But, that, you know, that, that can very easily be coach speak. Like, it, we all know that there is an element of disappointment inside of that locker room because of how the game went on December 1st. If that game goes a different way, a couple plays here and there, it's a different feeling, a different conversation, and they know that as well as us. So I, I think that for the Ducks, if they come out and say, you know what, we want to win 12 games for what would be just the fifth time in, in program history, if we want to really carry as much momentum as possible as we go into the Big Ten, send Bo Nix and Bucky Irving out and Brandon Dorless on a high note with their fantastic Oregon careers, then, yeah, I think they could dog walk Liberty. But if they don't, the Flames are going – there's no question about the Flames' motivation level, guys, because they're going to come out. It's arguably the biggest game in the history of their football program. Yeah, I, uh, I have a hard time thinking Oregon – will struggle on offense at any point in this game. You know, they should get a handful of explosive plays. They should be able to score pretty much whenever they want to. I, I wonder if Liberty gets off to a fast start themselves on offense, then it could be a semi-competitive game. But, yeah, I think 17's probably right in there. Liberty might be able to backdoor it if the Ducks play some reserves and defense, you know, at the end of the game or something. But it should be a comfortable um, Oregon victory uh, in this football game. Uh, what do you think of Bo Nix as an NFL prospect? I'm curious what you think as someone that's watched a lot of NFL and obviously you've watched a lot of college football, and Nix has a lot of data points uh, from which to analyze his college football career. Yeah, yeah, he does. And, you know, Michael Penix is going to have a lot of data points as well, and so too will Sam Hartman from Notre Dame. There are a lot of experienced veteran guys coming out in this quarterback class, which, you know, is largely considered to be one of the best in – the last 10, 15 years or so because of its depth. You know, you have Caleb Williams up at the top. You have Drake May. I love Drake May. I'm a Seahawks fan. And, Judah, I would love for the Seahawks to get Drake May somehow, some way. I don't think they will, but I, I would love for that to happen. But, you know, as it pertains to Bo Nick, I, I think it depends on his landing spot. And you can say that about anybody, but I think Caleb Williams and Drake May are going to be able to go wherever. I felt this about C.J. Stroud as well, and he's had a great rookie year. I, I think that wherever those guys go, they're going to end up being the same pro quarterback mostly. You can have some variation here and there because of, you know, what's around them, who the coaching staff is, and what sort of system they're running. But, you know, I look at Bo Nix, and I, I think about a guy like Brock Purdy and say, I, I see no reason that Bo Nix can't be Brock Purdy. I, I, I think that's the ceiling. A guy who, you know, Bo Nix has got a stronger arm. 
He's just as accurate, and he's got more athleticism. But if Brock Purdy were not on the 49ers, we wouldn't talk about him as a franchise-caliber quarterback. He is, so we do and we should. But to think that if Bo Nix like went to the Rams, I think that'd be awesome. I, I, th- I think if McVay could remind himself that running the football is what made him a great play caller in the first place, he got a little pat-tappy, I think, with Matt Stafford over the last couple of years, but they're still a good team. I think if Bo Nix is going to learn that system from Matt Stafford and the Rams give Bo Nix a try, yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic landing spot for him. But if he goes somewhere else, like the Patriots, I mean, who's going to succeed in the Patriots' offense? Like, they, they, they have no idea what they're doing offensively in New England. They've got Bill O'Brien as their OC, and by this time next year, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Josh McDaniels again. But the only guy that's had consistent success was this guy, Tom Brady, who turned out to be a pretty good player. So I think that for Bo Nick, it depends entirely on where he lands. I feel that way about just about every quarterback prospect that's coming out, aside from Caleb Williams and Drake May. I think those two guys are the franchise changers, the you know high-floor, high-ceiling sort of quarterbacks in the NFL from a production standpoint. But I think that for guys like Bo Nix or Michael Penix or you know, Quinn Ewers is going to go back, but a guy like Sam Hartman at Notre Dame or whoever else ends up being a pick you know, in the first or second or third round, I think it depends on, on your landing spot. Like, look at a guy like Jalen Hurts. He, he's good because he's in Philadelphia. If Jalen Hurts is in any other system, well, not necessarily any other system, but if he's in, you know, a Patriots spot or if he's with the Bears, you know, he doesn't have a fat contract waiting in the wings for him that, that he's already signed. Talking to Spencer McLaughlin, 750thegame.com, locked on Ducks, locked on Pac-12. Uh, we've been talking about Washington in the playoff here, Spencer. Um, you know, I know you're, you've been a Duck fan. You've been following them for a while. How should Duck fans feel about Washington on New Year's? Is it a team you root for because it makes you look a little bit better? Or is there no way in heck you can root for your rival to play for a national championship? Uh, I, I am unaware of any Oregon fan that will be rooting for Washington on Monday evening. <laughs> I'm not sure what the reasoning would be if you were, because in the past you could maybe justify, hey, we want West Coast football to be legitimized. Hey, we want it to get the respect that it deserves. We want to build up brands over here and have more than one national brand to play big-time games. There's no benefit to that for Oregon right now as they're about to go to the Big Ten. They've already demonstrated that they're a big enough brand to get an invite slowly because of football, because academically they are not as closely aligned with, you know, some of the other institutions that are in that conference. It's, it's a football play, bad Oregon. It's like 100%. If it were, you know, a- academically oriented, it probably would have been Washington and Stanford as the two teams that you take for the Big Ten. But it's Washington and Oregon because they've got the rivalry, because it's a big game, because they're great programs, they're historic programs. Oregon's already built them up to that, themselves up to that point. Washington is in that lane as well. Everyone is very well aware of that as they're making the 14 playoff for the second time. So I, I don't see what the benefit to Washington winning is for Oregon fans. 
I, I think Duck fans, they are currently seeking for, but uh, struggling to come up with because there isn't really anything to hold over Washington's head right now is that, you know, the Huskies haven't won a game on New Year's Day since uh, they haven't won one in my lifetime. They, 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 not, they have not won a college football playoff game yet, so that, that's the only sliver of optimism there. But right now, Duck fans, uh, when you meet your Washington friends or relatives or interact with them online, Duck fans are taking it on the chin, and that's because they don't really have a comeback right now in the football world. So with that in mind, what do you think happens on the field? Let's start with that Washington-Texas game uh, in the Sugar Bowl. Who do you think comes out on top? I think Washington does because I think it's a bad matchup for Texas. You know, Texas, is, neither defense is really very good. Um, neither one is, I think, as bad as the numbers might indicate, but I don't think either one is very good. And so when you have prolific offenses led by great quarterbacks and great offensive coaches, you're going to have a lot of points in this game. And I like that space, whether or not Xavier Worthy plays a wide receiver for Texas. So I, I think that for, for Texas, the strength of their defense that has been good this year has been defensive front. And Washington's offensive line just won the Joe Moore Award for the best O-line in college football. And they just bullied Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. And that was not a good, that was a great, is a great, Oregon defensive front. They were great all year, and Washington just played better on December 1st. So I think that that kind of neutralizes Texas's advantage. They have an injury question in the secondary. That's not going to go very well. And if you can't pressure Michael Penix, Washington's going to win the football game. It's usually that simple. It has been for the last two years. Even when Penix has been pressured, they found ways to win. But Washington just hasn't struggled enough offensively in any game where he isn't significantly pressured to make me think, oh, yeah, Texas can pull this out in this way or that way. I, I think that Washington's offensive line is just ridiculously good. They've got two offense, or uh, two NFL-caliber tackles that are playing at a really high level, and I think that the interior has been better than perhaps expected, and they have come together to be a really good unit. And um, I think for Texas, secondary questions and injury potentially back there, I, I think Washington's strength neutralizes that for Texas's defense, and um, I think it's a, it's a high-scoring game, but I don't think either team has beaten the other by double digits. And give me a single-digit game and Michael Pre- Michael Penix being comfortable, I'll take Kalen DeBoer and the Huskies to win that one because that's all he's done for the last two years. So all three of us are in agreement with that one. I know it would be the last thing Oregon fans would want to see to see Washington win the national championship. But in your yeah. est- in your estimation, who meets them there if it is Washington beating Texas? I think it's Alabama. I, I think this is the ultimate Nick Saban middle finger to the college football people who told him to retire at the start of this year because they lost to Texas. And, you know, he was certainly not fielding his best team at the beginning of the season. Um, and I don't think it is the best. Alabama team, but I think it's one of the best Nick Saban coaching jobs, and you know, I think Jim Harbaugh is a great coach. Not saying he can't do it in the playoffs. He hasn't yet, and if if, if Michigan were playing either Washington or Texas, I'd pick them to win, but I, I've got a tough time picking against Nick Saban in a spot like this, where I think he does, whether he admits it or not, have that motivation of 
so many people were asking the question, is it time for Saban to retire? Do we need to move on? Who's going to replace? Is it going to? And Nick Saban's just sitting there beating the two-time defending champs in Georgia, winning the SEC, another 12-win season. Ho-hum, they win the SEC. And I think that their offensive line has found a really good groove uh, as well. And I think Michigan's a great team. But I like Jalen Milrow more than J.J. McCarthy. I don't know that that's a popular take, but uh, I think Milrow with his legs is just playing at a really high level. And I think that for, for Alabama – if you're going to be in a close game like this, I, I think Saban finds a way to, to get it done. But I think these are the best matchups. Like, if you just told me without seeding, these are the best four football teams and you need to pair them up in a game, these are the matchups that I would want because you've got competing styles with one another. Grind it out, slug fest, a little more defense in the Rose Bowl and then in the Sugar Bowl, you got two teams that want to throw the ball, score a bunch of points, and have great offensive coordinators, play callers, and quarterbacks. So I, I, I think it's going to be fantastic. Final games were just high, high-quality entertainment, and that's what I expect to enjoy on Monday night. It'll be a great New Year's, uh, shaping out that way. Thanks a lot for the time, Spencer. We appreciate it, and we'll look forward to uh, following your work on 750thegame.com. Locked on Ducks as well. We'll talk to you again soon. Anytime, Judah. I appreciate it. There he is, Spencer McLaughlin. We'll wrap up shop when we come back on this final show of 2023. Kanzano back again next week. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Kanzano on the Bold Face Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Kanzano on 750 The Game. Thanks so much, everyone, for uh, sticking around, listening to the shows all week long. Thanks to Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic talking Seahawks with us in Hour 1. Spencer McLaughlin locked on ducks, talking little duckies with us this hour as well. Uh, Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, wrapping up shop on the final show of 2023. Stephen, can you believe it? We've uh, we've reached it. We'll be 2024 next time uh, we pop on these live mics with Kanzano back in the chair next week. Yeah, pretty wild stuff. Uh, you know, 2023 was a great year for sports, an interesting year for sports, but uh, expect nothing less. Frank Thomas is still alive. He's alive. Great so news. that's great. At great least news. the big hurt is still alive. That's really good news. It's great news. Uh, you know, the, the, the Beavers have a conference, kind of, the Pac-2. I mean, yes. hey, you know. Come to conclusions. Got, assets, so, got all that. Yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks to everybody. Thanks to you guys, Judah, you and John as well. For, Thank you. Uh, let me be part of it. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, man, for all you bring. It's, it's awesome. Uh, and now you're on your way to Moda Center for the second time in two nights. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'll be honest. This one, no Wemby, no Anthony Simons, no Shaden Sharp, no Aiton. I mean. You'll be betting some stuff. Yeah. Keep me entertained. <laughs> I, I'm excited. I, anytime you get to go to a live sporting event, man, it's always good times. Hit, uh, hit up. The Dippin' Dots. Dippin' Dots 300 level. I feel like that's the best spot for the Dippin' Dots. What's your Dippin' Dot flavor? Cookies and cream, banana split, uh, rainbow, or mint? Um, cookies and cream. Yeah, that, that's what Lincoln goes with. That's what I do. So, you know, have fun with that. Hopefully, you know, the it's Friday, so you can cut loose a little bit. Enjoy the, a couple extra Dippin' Dots on the house. You, you know, still use your card, your Blazer employee card for uh, all the hey, deals. Hey, hey, keep that oh, on sorry, the deal sorry, there. Sorry, sorry, that was Connor Stallion's uh, online one there. Uh 
But enjoy your New Year's weekend. Thank you, audience. Thank you, everybody that listens to the show. Makes it part of your day. Um, it means the world. And enjoy your holiday weekend with the Duckies and the Fiesta Bowl. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday of next week.